This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by Jacob Lund Fisker, who wrote the first popular blog on financial independence and extreme early retirement. As one of the progenitors of the FIRE movement, that is financial independence, retire early, his philosophy embraces a more responsible way of living beyond the wake, work, and consume cycle that encircles capitalistic societies today. His book, Early Retirement Extreme, which applies systems theory to personal finance, has sold over 40,000 copies. An astrophysicist by training, he retired at 33 and now focuses on practical, practical aspects of individual adaption to the impacts of energy resources and climate breakdown. Anyway, Jacob, thank you so much for joining. It's my pleasure to have you. All right, wonderful. That being said, I am really interested in learning about how it is that you even became interested in science in the first place. So, you know, before you got into the extreme early retirement uh, <laughs> aspect of your life, you were first a you know, physicist. So I'm just curious to hear your journey to science. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's definitely not like a straight path from, for me to be, uh, I tend to have like a five-year planning horizon. Uh, but like initially, I think, I mean, as, as most kids my generation, I grew up wanting to be an astronaut, you know, age five, not a, a fire truck. Um, uh, science specifically probably started when I got a subscription to a Danish magazine called Science Illustrated, uh, which had just come out as like the first science magazine in the country at the time, as far as I'm aware. It was probably earlier ones, but that was like at age nine. So that was like a big spaceship on, on the front cover uh, going to Jupiter. And I really wanted that magazine. And then my parents just uh, started buying it for me. Uh, but like, I wasn't specifically interested in, in becoming a researcher at that, at that time. It was more just about space, space travel and my other interests were essentially uh, Lego, electronics and computers. So science, yeah, say what? Uh, so you were, a, uh, you were a bit of a nerd like myself. Yeah, right? yeah, like a child. Like, yeah, you were, like, you were... Really nerd at science. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. I, I, I own that term. Right, so, right. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. So, okay, so space travel um, was something that fascinated you as a child, and you said that you had the electronics component as well. So, I'm assuming that, that that's something that kind of stuck with you then throughout, like, you know, middle school, high school, and then at some point you decided that you were going to go away to university and you decided but, that you were going to go into science, or? No, technically, I mean, um, I mean, my interests have always sort of come around in circles. I get interested in something and then. It's, it gets exciting for a while and then maybe I drop it and come back to it five years later. So for, for example, electronics stuff I, I've been doing on and off from time to time and same thing with, uh, with say like astronomy or astrophysics. Uh, 
in terms of career, uh, it, it, I think it's 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 a it has a lot more to do with serendipity in, in terms of like you 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 make a specific choice at exactly the right time to set you off on on a different tra trajectory. So I mean that's at least how I see the future that you have a certain you have a certain amount of pathways right, but a very limited amount of critical junctures where some decision essentially uh, affects everything. So I mean, in, in educationally, I mean, I was in, uh, I would say probably until about the, what would correspond to the 10th grade in the US system, I was pretty bored going to school. Uh, it, was, it was a very boring experience. Experience. So, like uh, in, in in the Danish system, uh, the, the, the the priority is essentially on uh, your personal like like social development, getting along with others, not so much on like intellectual development. So um, basically, you're an entire class of about fifteen to twenty people track along for like the first nine years, and then you again track the same class for the next three years up to up to grade. So you so you had the same classmates? Yeah, same, you mean? Everybody goes to the same classes at the same time with each other. Okay. That, that group. And so so you're basically in with like a, a, what one could dismissively call like the general population, which means like lots of repetition. They're basically being taught to the average uh, yeah. student, which means that those who are Yeah, I know. I, I, I heard very yeah, I heard and, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I've heard very similar stories from bright people about how the general education system was just kind of yeah a, it was a slog it, it was very boring and they just yeah, didn't fit yeah, in yeah. and yeah yeah so in practice what that resulted in was me sort of like losing more and more enthusiasm with the, with the school system or the schooling system uh, my parents once told me a story sort of like in retrospect i'd forgotten all about it but like on the, on, on, on my first day in school, apparently I asked the, the teacher what, what we could, whether we could get some homework, because that was like so exciting. And she hadn't planned anything and read that regards, but then <laughs> apparently so told us that we could go home and practice the alphabet. So I spent the entire day just writing the alphabet. Uh, but not, nothing, was, nothing was essentially planned. So I was, I was sort of like just doing the minimal there. I wasn't thinking about grades or anything whatsoever. Um, then what happened was that um, I think I was like in ninth, in ninth grade, I got a modem. So that was in, in 89, 1989. So that was like uh, 240 uh, bytes per second speed. But that meant you could get on the FireNet. That was before the internet was really a thing. Um, and in there, you essentially could meet other people who are sort of like nerdy or geeky enough to be able to get on, on the net. and. Um, there was this guy uh, I, I started talking to in one of the science forums uh, called Mini, he called himself Mini Gauss after the German mathematician. And um, he was talking about complex numbers and proving theorems and all that other stuff I, I essentially never heard about because our math class was, was still about solving like, you know, like uh, a, uh, y equals ax plus b, find Something right well, you you were in ninth grade, so I'm assuming that complex analysis was not something. That was not that a thing, right? That was, but technically, it could have been a thing, right? I mean, I, I understood what he was. I could understand what he was talking yeah. about. You know, and this was like very interesting to me. Instead of like 
you know, you always get this question, you know, like, so son, what have you learned in school today? And my answer was always like nothing, you know, like we haven't really learned anything this year, maybe like square roots were introduced, but we've just been practicing them for like four months now, right? So, so there's no like novelty in, in, in going to school in that sense, right? So, so basically the, um, the idea that had not occurred to me because, you know, kids are just handed off to school, right? And then they come back and so it's sort of like an institutional setting was that you could actually become responsible for your own education so that's happened around the 10th 10th grade so i i, I kind of like what's what's so so this mini galas guy is, is pretty cool and i want to be like that too right so i had, went down to the uh, high school library and uh, walked over to the science you know the stem section and essentially, you started reading uh, college-level textbooks in physics. Okay. And that's, that's essentially how I got into physics. I mean, because then, in that sense, like, career choice uh, over there was not really focused on, does this have any, like, career prospects? Or is there any income in this field? You know, is there any good job prospects? It was just like, you should just go study what you're passionate about. Because yeah. they, they just wanted to push students uh, through the system, right? And if you study what you're passionate, passionate about, it's a lot more likely that you'll finish. So that's essentially how I became a physicist. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's it. All started. It all started on the primitive internet by a you said a German mathematician. He put kind of no, no. I mean, he was Danish. I mean, but like oh, Danish mathematician. Yeah, his, his handle was uh, Mini Gauss back when you had a Mini Gauss. Yeah, yeah the, Gauss. okay. That's yeah, uh, that's funny. German mathematician. So yeah, and then you started reading books. Uh, started reading books in the library. You know, that's funny. Is I started reading physics books when I was in high school as well. Yeah. Uh, I was pretty bored with the educational system, but I did love my science classes. Right. Exactly. I always did. The, I always did the best in my science classes. I uh, never really didn't. I didn't like my math classes, which is surprising. I think for a lot of people, uh, considering that I, I have a degree in math. Yeah. But and you need to and you need to use a lot of math in order to do physics. But I didn't right. really ever. I never really appreciated mathematics. Uh, I think uh, until I got to higher level mathematics because I couldn't really understand why it was so important. Like I couldn't visualize anything. I just was kind of like manipulating equations and things of that nature, uh, that's and that's I didn't cool. understand like why it was so applicable to everyday life. Whereas with physics, I mean the math came really really easy when I could see it then applied to everything. Yeah, um, I mean, in, 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 in our case, uh, when, when you start at, uh, at, at, at the university, at the particular university, it's, it's all different over there, depending on which one you go to. But the one I went to, you had to pick two majors in your first year, like immediately before you start. Okay. And for me, it was mathematics and physics. Which makes sense. I mean, because you yeah, use so yeah. much I mean, math, it makes perfect together, sense. Right? Yeah. It's the classic constellation, but you could also yeah. pick, pick like physics and chemistry was another popular one. And then there's like computer science could be one and like mathematical uh, economics. I think those were like the, the five, five things you could pick. And I, I kind of enjoyed uh, sort of like the man manipulation of equations, et cetera, you know these kind of simple questions in, uh, in high school. So I picked mathematics without knowing that the sort of like the more advanced level was uh, theorem proof, theorem proof, you know, like endlessly, which I don't think I was very good at relative to, to other people because that's just not how my, my, my brain is wired. Yeah. 
I'm well, I can relate. I can relate, Jacob. I so the mathematics that I enjoy the most is more of the applied mathematics where like, yeah, the complex like, analysis, the partial differential equations, the differential equations, calculus, things of that nature. But taking uh, like advanced calculus where you're actually it's like theorem based calculus where you're learning mathematics from axioms or first principles, which is really important, right? If you want to do mathematics, but that type of mathematical, like pure math work doesn't interest me as much. Right. And I'm not as good at it. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's why I was more drawn to physics and the sciences in general is because I like to see things applied. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I can totally relate. And I understand what it's like to not be theory based, but more of an applied, yeah. I mean, applied I mathematics. My, my math professor told me once, but you probably nailed it in the sense that, uh, well, you probably have talent, Jacob, but you're not rigorous enough to do this. <laughs> it was always, I would prove something and he would be, what about the special case, you know, like, but that never happens. What's my argument? <laughs> and I could kind of see sort of the opposite when I was, uh, came, started in grad school and I started TAAP when sometimes you would have mathematicians come in and they would, I wouldn't say of course, but generally they would not give, you know, they, they wouldn't care about the physical aspects of the problems at all, so they would prove everything. And they were like, you know, go on theory proof almost. And then in the case that the charge of the electron is converges towards zero, we have the following solution that we go on. Dude, you know, <laughs> the charge of the electron is what it, what it is, right? You can't, you can't uh, just set it to zero. And this special, this special case of yours has no relevance. Um, so you're you're no longer representing reality. I mean, it might be interesting exactly, from yeah. a yeah. It might be interesting from a pure mathematical standpoint right. to see what comes out, yeah. but at the end of the day, physicists are not interested in that because those solutions yeah. don't represent the real world. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah the, 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 the mathematics physicists commit tends to be like a lot more ugly than what mathematicians are willing to accept. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> totally well, the world is complicated, right? It's not as pretty as pure mathematics right, sometimes right. wants yeah, it yeah. to be. So, but anyway, that's, that's really interesting. So then, okay, so you went into university, double majored in math and physics. And then at what point did you decide, did you decide that um, you're like, you know what, I really enjoy this. I kind of want to go on to graduate school. Did you go the master's degree route and then a PhD or did you go straight for the doctoral degree? Uh, so um, that again, that's sort of like university specific, what you, what you can do. But first I got a master's degree and then I transferred to Switzerland where I got my PhD down there. Uh, I think I had this idea almost all the way from the day I applied that I wanted to go into research. Uh, so I was always sort of like fighting in that direction. Uh, I didn't, I, never, I, I, I remember specifically not wanting to go into industry because I had these sort of like ideas about, you know, like Einstein and Heisenberg and Feynman walking around in the, in the park and thinking of all these great thoughts, right? Uh, so, so I basically wanted to, to, to be that guy, right? Um, uh, but I did not, I would say, I will admit, I did not have a specific sort of like career goal in the sense of when I need to get my PhD and then I'm going to do like the required one and a half to two postdocs and then I need to get a professorship there and so on and so forth. I, had, I did not have that mapped out. Uh, so basically my, my, my end target was to, to get the, get the dissertation. Uh, okay. Yeah. Where, I'm curious, where, where in uh, Switzerland did you go to school? Basel. I'm sorry? Basel. Ba okay. I'm not uh, familiar, but... Uh, just, uh, the, the ones that Benuli went to in Euler. Okay. 
<laughs> that, uh, Nietzsche was there for a while. Nietzsche was there. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, that, that's that's fantastic. I've uh, I've always wanted to go to Switzerland, and actually at one point was looking at schools in Switzerland, uh, but I've actually never made it to the country. It's definitely on my it's on my bucket list of places to go. Uh, I would yeah. When I was in I was in France, a part of a uh, it was supposed to be a PhD because I, I was in for a stint in my life. I was really interested in renewable energy and in particular nuclear fusion. And I ended up living in southern France for seven months because I wanted to be a part of the ITER project, which I'm, uh, I'm assuming you're familiar with. Uh, anyway, and for those of you who are not familiar that are tuning in, ITER is an acronym for International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor and nuclear uh, fusion is the process that powers stars. So you take essentially very small atoms and you smush them together and you get energy out in the process, which is the opposite of what we have now as far as our nuclear power plants, which is fission, where you take large atoms and then you break them apart into smaller atoms and then you get energy out. But anyway, fusion is still experimental and they're building the largest one in France at the moment. I wanted to be a part of that project uh, and was supposed to be a PhD, but I was thinking about leaving, staying just for a master's degree and then uh, trying to go somewhere else. And I was looking at universities in Switzerland because there's a lot of, as you know, very good universities in Switzerland, but that didn't work out. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't work out in general, I ended up, uh, ended up leaving. But anyway, yeah, Switzerland, awesome. It's definitely on uh, my bucket list of places to go. I mean, I, I've seen pictures of it, it, looks, uh, it just looks absolutely breathtaking. I can't imagine you know, being able to go to school there for a number of years, that had, that had to be quite, quite the view. Yeah, yeah, and the language. And the language? <laughs> so were you in the uh, French or uh, German-speaking portion? The Swiss-German part. Swiss-German? Okay. Right, right, right in the corner, the, the, the tri-state area, right between Switzerland, Germany, and France. You could, okay. Uh, from, from where I live, you could walk to France in, I think it was about 10 to 15 minutes walking. Oh, wow. Okay. Very and close. It would be a 20-minute walk. Oh, right at the corner then, right at the corner. Right, right, right in the corner. Yeah, right there. I, uh, yeah, I was looking at more of the French portion because right. I, I um, well, at least when I was living in France, I was fluent in French. I can't say the same anymore, <laughs> but uh, you, tend to, you tend to lose these things. They say if you, don't, if you don't use it, you lose it, and there's something very, very true about that. Anyway, I was, uh, I, was very, I was quite fluent in French when I was living in France, but then I've lost it over the years. But anyway, I was, uh, I was looking at the schools more in the French-speaking uh, French portion, just because that would make the most sense for me. But uh, okay, that's fascinating. So okay, so you go to, you've got your PhD that you're going to school, you decided at some point that you wanted to go on for it. And then how did you end up in astrophysics? I mean, there's a bunch of different areas of physics that you can go into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that stem, did that stem from childhood as well? I mean, you know, you're not talking really. about like this. No, okay. Not really. I mean, I would say almost randomly. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe not that random. Uh, I mean, I, since I, I wanted to go into high, high energy physics, so particle physics or uh, quantum field theory, that kind of, you know, that's just theoretical as, as humanly possible. For, for within the limits of, of, of my university. So one, one thing I, I, I realized uh, when, when I had to do my master's degree is that you know, you're, no, you're no longer the one to, to, to pick your, your own project where you want to go. You basically go to a bunch of potential advisors and they'll, they'll say, well, I, can, uh, I have this project that you can do. I have this project. And 
So eventually I ended up with uh, this uh, a German professor um, in, 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 in Denmark who, who wanted to do something with uh, nuclear astrophysics. So essentially nuclear reactions pertaining to reactions in, in stars or in astrophysical scenarios. So that was my, uh, that was my master's thesis. And then he uh, essentially put me in touch with uh, another nuclear astrophysics guy uh, in Switzerland. So I went there and then I started getting more into simulations. So I ended up doing like X-ray bursts, which are like uh, explosive hydrogen burning uh, on the surface of neutron stars. So I built simulations of that. Really, really that, interesting. Yeah. So uh, with your master's research then, did you, did you actually study nuclear fusion at all? You said you were no, doing... No, no. no. It, was, it was essentially beta decay and uh, okay. proton gamma reactions on proton rich nuclei. I see. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I, I think it's uh, also funny that you said that you wanted to study quantum field theory. Like that's what you wanted to ended up. That's what you wanted to go into was high energy theory. And yeah. I, I think that a lot of theorists want to end up in that area, but it is so, so difficult. Um, and I can speak to this firsthand because I actually started my PhD out attempting to go into high energy theory. Uh, so I've always been drawn to theoretical physics. I just like the, the mathematical component of it more than the experimental. And uh, when I was doing nuclear fusion, I w it, was, it was again theory, but that didn't work out. Then I ended up coming back to the United States and I just kind of went back to my alma mater that I got my master's degree from. And I have a professor at my university who I've taken a number of theoretical physics courses with like general relativity, quantum field theory, and he's just absolutely phenomenal. I like, again, theoretical physics more. I'm kind of drawn to it. So I was gonna do work with him and he's a field theorist. Uh, I tried to do this work for about a year and a half or so. And this, this meant that I had to actually like self-teach me, or excuse me, uh, learn on my own, I should say, a number of aspects of quantum field theory that I actually didn't learn in the class. So I had to independently take quantum field okay. theory. And then I had to try to do research. And the research was on like higher level, higher, higher level loop calculations. So it was incredibly intense using math, Mathematica building programs, things of that nature. Uh, I also didn't have any funding. I just had like minimal TA funding. I didn't have any sort of research assistantship. So I was trying to do this highly technical research and then balance this with also working a job too while you're in graduate school and ba balance other life responsibilities. And it was a bit of a nightmare. And yeah. let's just say it didn't work out, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah what, I, what I observed or noticed was that there's, there seems to be like two different kinds of students. That's like, if you're like idealistic, you tend to go towards the, um, the subatomic stuff, you know, particle, field theory, et cetera, string theory, maybe even actually. But if you're more practical, which I definitely wasn't, then you will go with solid state and atomic physics because that's also where like the careers and the money is. Uh, I, I, I remember for, for we, we used to have the, the Friday seminars uh, approximately at the same time for the, for the nuclear astro group as, uh, as the solid state physics guys. And we got these like uh, uh, tin can cookies with uh, they hauled the institutional coffee maker down to the to the lecture hall, whereas the uh, the solid state group almost always had their food catered in with waitresses hanging. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, so I mean, but but that's sort of like illustrative of, of 
me not really thinking through the entire thing in terms of subsequent work in terms of a career etc you know that that that's really really interesting that you said you kind of made the connection that you had the solid state people or let's say material science who were more pragmatic and they realized that this is where the money's at and then you had the people in theoretical physics like high energy maybe astro where they were more idealists and they're like well i want to do this anyway and i don't care basically if i make any money doing it i don't even think uh, because it's I don't even think it's something like, I don't care. It's more like, I haven't even thought about it. I haven't even thought about it? Okay. Yeah, right? You just kind of like assume, right? You don't think think, yeah. right? you don't think in terms of like real life practical matters. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know if I'm projecting too much here, but that was, that was essentially my attitude. Um, no, I can, I can appreciate that. And I, you know, now that, now that you've said that, I'm definitely more of an idealistic person and I'm happy to ad uh, admit that. However, I like to try to stay as grounded as possible in reality is what I tell people. And I think that that has been that attitude that more towards grounding um, is not something that I have done of like my own volition. It was kind of like forced upon me. It's like, if you want to exist in today's society, you need to understand, you need to understand that, you know, that how it operates, I suppose, and that there's not a whole lot of money in this particular okay. space. And that it's just because society doesn't value it as much as you would like them to. So, and that's just how it is, unfortunately, yeah. but whatever. You I mean, I, I think a nice side effect of being sort of on, on, on the more idealistic uh, side of things in that regard is that uh, one tends not to uh, develop a fascination for, 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 for bling or sort of like the nice consumer items in, in, in life. That's not why you do it, so you can easily do without them, right? Yes. Uh, that, that that was definitely my. But when when I was doing, it, I was like, hey, yeah, just give me a give me a computer and access to the archive or something, and then I'll be happy for the next forty fifty years, <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that you realize at some point uh, if you are more of an idealist and you operate in the space where you know you're not getting access to a lot of resources, but you don't really you, you kind of realize that you don't need these things. Yeah. Uh, to be happy, right? So I'm, I'm curious, you know, now that you bring that up, when did your minimalist kind of life philosophy, the early retirement, all of that start to develop for you? Is that something that developed, you think, like earlier, like undergraduate, maybe it was before undergraduate? And kind of when did it really become implemented in your life? You're like, you know, at this point, you know, I've developed this philosophy, maybe you even wrote it down, or maybe you're just collecting thoughts over the years. But it's like, I really want to live my life like this. Well, it's definitely more inducted in that sense. But I mean, I've always been uh, somewhat of a tightwad in, 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 in the sense that I had a very specific value to my money, but it was also, I also tended to, tended to spend it on uh, computer hardware. Uh, as opposed to say like a beer or taxi drives and nights in town, so I would, okay. say I, I, my 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 personal finance, my but my, my personal understanding of money essentially was that money was something you saved up slowly in order to buy something like a like a gadget or a widget or something. And it kind of go, comes back to this kind of like a gearhead gadget consumer kind of thinking. So that's that's what I did uh, basically until I started in grad school. Uh, buying a new hard drive, buying, upgrading the computer, getting a bigger monitor. Uh, the last 
huge thing I bought was a uh, 23 inch CRT monitor back when the standard monitor size was maybe like 17 inches or something. Okay. That thing cost like more than 2,000 Swiss francs. Just, just for a monitor. Expensive. <laughs> yeah, just for uh, a computer monitor. Expensive, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then I, um, so, so I was essentially living, uh, this decided to, to uh, not spend too much money on, um, on my living quarters. So I was living, uh, I chose to live, stay, stay living in a dorm when, when, when I moved to Switzerland rather than get an apartment and a car now that I could afford it technically. Uh, and, um, that room was hooked up to like a, a T1, I think. LAN connection, so really good internet speed. So I was essentially spending the evenings either working or surfing, browsing the internet. That was back in 2000. And at one point, I fall uh, accidentally. I have no idea how I ended up there. Uh, I have some idea, but I ended up on a site, on a website, uh, sort of like designed in the 1990s style group <laughs> about anti-consumerism. And that essentially blew my mind. Uh, I had never really thought about uh, where the resources of all my computers and cameras and the things I was for buying, where they came from and that they might be limited. And I had never thought about uh, what happened to things after I threw them out, how, where they would go in a landfill or the pollution they might cause, um, where the minerals came from, you know, like uh, coal sand and stuff like that mining in the Congo, uh, all, all these kind of like the wider net other than just uh, just reading like hardware reviews of awesome, you know, like new toys. Um, so um, because of that, uh, I, I, I actually became really concerned about where the world was going and that we might not end up in that kind of, you know, like Star Trek future I had envisioned that we were going towards. I mean, you said you were working the, you, you, you would prefer to work in fusion, right? Yes. And I kind of took that also, I kind of took that as, as grand, okay, so we'll get fusion and then we'll, got, like, we'll put that in spaceships and we'll go to like, you know, like the outer planets within like a hundred years or something. And that's essentially what I saw myself as a physicist helping to move, do my little part to move that forward. Uh, but then I kind of became aware of all these other problems and so, so, so that was kind of like the one thing I got to stop, like, I got, I got to like curb my enthusiasm in terms of like my consumption pattern here because this, 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 this can probably not go on. Um, so I essentially did what like the kids these days call like a buy nothing year. I, I stopped buying everything other than food. Um, and of course, when you do that, uh, you start saving up a lot of money. A lot of money. Um, now, as a physicist or as a scientist, I had this kind of like arrogant uh, attitude towards anything financial or money or business. As in, like this is, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this to me, but my attitude back then was that <laughs> all this stuff is sort of like beneath my, you know, like my brain space, and I don't have to care about that stuff. Kind of goes back to this being like more of an ideologically driven or in, uh, in, driven by interest than driven by pra practical realities of actually working in a career of, of a scientist. Um, so I started reading into that as well. So we have on the one side, we had sort of like the anti-consumerism and the other side, we had the, uh, personal finance, uh, education, which, uh, in, in, during my schooling was almost completely absent. They did not teach us any, any of that stuff, like 
how does it work? Are you talking about like finance? Yeah, yeah, basically yeah, yeah. finance. I mean, you, you, I think the most advanced was uh, sort of writing, writing on a budget or something, or balancing a checkbook. It was kind of like yeah. at that level, you know. Um, no, it's the same. It's the same here in the United States. It's yeah. it's just abysmal. It's awful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had like a semester, I think, in high school on personal economics. They call it. Yeah. And I learned about what the stock market is and how to balance a checkbook. That's really what I took away from that class. That's way, and, way and what a savings account is. Yeah. And it's just yeah. it's just terrible. It's not enough. It's, I mean, way it's not beyond, even, not even yeah, close. Yeah, yeah. Way beyond, way beyond. I mean, the, uh, sort of the closest we got to that is this, this one hour of math class. Maybe, maybe it was two hours. Maybe it was a combined hour. They walk us down to the nearest bank. And we got a Coca-Cola or something. And then uh, you got, we had this like young bag assistant with an overhead projector talking about what kind of, we could get a car loan or we could get, you know, like a house loan or this required a down payment. You could, but you could get a loan for that too. Basically a sales presentation. Um, and that would essentially com be combined with the uh, sort of like the career advice we had gotten throughout the entire system, which was, well, what are you interested in? Oh, I'm interested in physics. Oh, you should just go study that. So not, no, no concern of like, what are, what, what are like the placement ratios? Uh, what can, can you actually expect to have a job as a physicist when you get out or will you end up in tech support uh, or teaching high school or something like that? Uh, or, re, re, you know, like retraining or what kind of income levels will get so 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 no consideration based on that so it was all about what is your passion what are your interests uh once we were like almost done they had these career days which was actually more like half a day so it's not like in the u.s where there's typically like internships that, that gets you in contact with actual an actual job at some point there was there was nothing like that and there we would again you know here's a brochure about how to sign up for like the unemployment insurance and joining a union which is a big thing over there uh, and something about well you should probably start a pension savings plan before you're 30 but you know basically blank slang blank slate right but as a physicist you're pretty good at, uh, at developing understanding based on fundamentals so after realizing that it, insofar I bought a house with a mortgage, I would end up paying twice the price of the actual house I was buying in interest. Then my inner type was saying like, no, we're not going to do this. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that just seems crazy, right? And then so, 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 so the idea there became, well, I'm going to save up so I can buy my first house in cash. And then that right. combined with the uh, anti-consumerism where I was suddenly not spending money, it just became, a, okay, instead of like saving up for 23-inch CRT mines or 24-inch, which would probably be coming out next year. Um, so the, the world had moved to like LED screens, LCD screens back then. Um, <laughs> so there was still these, you know, like boxes on, on top of desks. I, I figured, okay, this is just me saving for something that's, some, something bigger, right? But, but, but a lot bigger, but still the same principle. So everything went into a savings account. And essentially by the, uh, by the end of my PhD, when I graduated, I saved $90,000 of my uh, student stipend. So, but there was no real sort of like, uh, I would say coherent philosophy at that point yet. It was just sort of like, okay, now I have some experience in uh, basically not spending money and, Live, figuring out that I can actually live quite well 
or live, live a decent life as a sort of like doing research and sort of like yeah. self-actualizing as a as an intellectual uh, you know you know what's you know what's really interesting too jacob is that uh you know as a as a graduate student you don't make a whole lot of money right, and yeah. but the the realization that you don't need a lot of stuff to make you happy right, because right. you know in in capitalistic societies they sell you on stuff i mean that you always need to be consuming and that this is kind of like your responsibility to society is to consume stuff you mm -hmm. go to work and then you bring home money and then with that money you're supposed to buy things with it and then right. that's just how it works <laughs> but yeah yes yeah, it's this, this cycle and there's so many people that are stuck on this or convinced that this is just normal and right. as you know i mean there's no reason why it, need, it should be considered normal it's just that it works really, really well for people that want to sell you stuff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so in a sense, I mean, I also had this kind of like, okay, I mean, the sort of like the early seeds of that kind of thinking were kind of so like, I, I didn't want to be some, some, you know, like ant in the anthill that was just being mined for my productivity. So I could sort of be happy with buying stuff. I, I sort of began to see the, uh, the tragedy in that. Uh, it is a tragedy. Also, yeah, yeah it, is, it, is, of, it is a tragedy. And I also kind of had bought enough stuff. I had been in that cycle for long enough. Uh, I've, I've been working since I was like 12 years old, you know, like weekend jobs and stuff like that. And all my money went that way. And so at that time, I already had like 12 years of experience as sort of like a consumer of, uh, of, of stuff. I was beginning to realize that it was practically, it was almost like a drug addiction in, in a sense. You save up some stuff and then you... Uh, you buy this shiny new toy, right? And that gives you this kind of dopamine injection that lasts somewhat briefly, right? And then you need to buy something else and it's not exciting anymore, you know? You research a, a, new, uh, a new SLR camera, for example, and you learn all about photography and then you run around taking pictures for two months and then that gets boring. And then you buy a telescope or something for the next savings and so at least I did it. I mean, that's kind of, kind of how it ended up and uh, the, the sort of like the, the treadmill I was on, also called the hedonic treadmill. And I was beginning oh, yeah. to realize that there's probably, there should be more to life than this. This, 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 this does not make sense that I had to, that this is the, the only, only thing that, that, is, that is essentially there. I was like, like what you said with, with, with grad school, I mean, there's, there's, there's more to life than just, you know, like, working and getting paid and then buying buying stuff in grad school you have access to like very interesting people you're doing very interesting work so you can you can you can sort of like self-actualize in different ways than 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 than, than just buying fancy stuff or upgrading all the time yeah and i i think that the you, know, you talk about self-actualize and kind of figuring out what it is that fills you makes you happy mm -hmm. uh so that way like at the end of the day you can feel satisfied I think that creating really, really fills people with kind of that um, that that emptiness that buying things always seems to create. So you know, you're talking about the dopamine hit. You get stuck on this hedonic treadmill. You buy something and then you lose interest in it. Mm -hmm. And that if you figure out how to create something uh, that that fills you. That, that 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 can always satisfy you and what i mean by that is that you don't have like these these highs that somehow need to be supplemented all the time with something else uh mm -hmm. for example like i love to i love to write similar to you mm -hmm. and 
the, I, it's just something that I do. It's how I fill my time and I get into these flow states and it's just, it's very satisfying and I'm just creating, I'm just sitting there, I'm creating, it's my computer screen and a keyboard uh, and it doesn't cost me any money. I mean, it costs time, but I, it's how I like spending my time. So if you can find ways to enter these flow states where you are creating and not consuming goods, uh, that you're stuck, you're then like on a different type of, I don't want to call it hedonic treadmill, but a different, just a different way of filling your time. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a multi-dimensional space and, and essentially consumers are locked into one single dimension where everything is, is, is measured in money, often kind of forgetting that there are other ways than, you know, buying things and unwrapping them and then organizing them and putting them away or throwing them away. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, oh and so, so another another thing with with with, with respect to the uh, the anti consumerism, I was also beginning to look. So, so it's not just driven by sort of like resources and, and and pollution. There was also some some sense of of, of limits to it. And you you probably heard of the ecological footprint and how we are like consuming more than one planet. planet oh yeah, absolutely. I, I'm I'm intimately familiar with the field of biophysical economics. Which is, yeah, which is kind of like, uh, for those unfamiliar, it's uh, essentially a newer philosophy of economics where you're including the planet and like environmental resources into the mix of things where, you know, the human economic system is no longer separate from the planetary, uh, planetary, where you're trying to merge all of these things together, which makes perfect sense because if you think about traditional economics that preaches growth uh, forever, uh, which is uh, completely at ends with the laws of physics since we live in a finite planet. I mean, you can't, you can't have unlimited growth on a finite sphere. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, normal uh, sort of 19th century economics are essentially presuming infinite bounds, boundary conditions on the, on the resource side and the sink, uh, on, uh, and the sink side, the pollution side. Uh, whereas, yeah, finite planet. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 so one one calculation I did very very early on was some back of the envelope calculation using the the the, the, the planetary foot or the ecological footprint and the, the world GDP to see well what would be the limit if everybody lived in a particular way could we actually like make a sustainable world world what 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 is like the per person consumption in that case in in, in raw dollars and I at, at that at that. The, the the result back then was like six thousand dollars per person per year. So if you if you spend more than that, you're essentially removing resources from some other human, either in the present or in the future at some point. So the current the current number is something like sixty seven hundred per person per year. So my goal was to see essentially can I live like that? And having just like moved to a new country, arriving with just a couple of suitcases, it was, it was kind of easy for me. It's a lot harder if one's already established in a huge house, you know, like with family and 10 cars, et cetera. But I, I, I practically started with a blank slate and then I tried to keep under the limit. So for me, it was not very hard because it was this, the, um, that limit was, was very much the, similar to what I was already getting in, in, stipend, in my stipend as an undergraduate. So I already had experience living at that level. All I had to do was to learn new skills and 
in terms of how to spend my resource. I, I don't want I don't want to say just money, but spend my resources, leverage by learning other skills that I haven't learned in school to stretch those dollars more than just on a one-to-one -one basis. Like instead of like getting one dollar of good out of one dollar spent, how to get two dollars so you can live a better life. So that was that was sort of like my initial experiment. But in terms of philosophy which i think was sort of like the question asked like 20 minutes ago, <laughs> ago it was not really a coherent philosophy at that point it was just something i did but i did not have sort of like an intellectual framework for what i was actually doing yeah it was more like intuitive this is just how i live yeah but you were driven by this idea of essentially anti-consumerism yeah. and then at some point you became concerned for the environment mm -hmm. uh and then you were like okay well let's look at the carrying capacity of the earth. And as far as the resource limits, you know, you realize that, hey, we can't have inf infinite growth uh, with finite boundary conditions. It doesn't make any, it's not compatible. It doesn't make any sense. So what, you know, what level do I really actually need to live in order to be sustainable with the planet? Okay. And you realize that it was, it's actually quite low. I mean, trying to live for what, six, $7,000 a year, you said? Yeah. Six, $7,000 a year on, you know, in the United States, that's, that's going to be challenging, I think, for a lot of people. I think yeah. a lot of people would find that challenging. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to get into, like, purchases. When, when, whenever you get, this, get a specific amount, then lots of people start gamifying the metric, right? Like, okay, I have 7,000. I'm just going to, like, move to Thailand where that money goes a lot further. Yeah. Right? So, so that, that's cheating. That does not count. Right? <laughs> so that's purchasing power. Okay, parity to keep in mind but in general it gives sort of like the ballpark of what one should be doing i mean that's obviously also depends on whether you're spending your seven thousand dollar allotment on like uh, filling your swimming pool with crude oil and setting it on fire right that would be like pretty <laughs> bad or whether you're buying a sort of like uh, your your neighbor's uh, vegetable garden that would be a pretty good way of, of spending the money uh, but but overall, I mean, the money flows elsewhere to people spending it. So so it's it's you can't you can't really sort of say yeah well I'm spending it on green stuff yeah. because you can be sure that the people you are paying that money quickly goes out and gets spent in sort of like the standard way. Uh, so so for me the, the the money level was was sort of the my my target to try very hard not to exceed that. The difficulty in, in doing that uh, sort of again goes back to the way our generation was was raised and the current generation is raised in that some somewhere uh, for my part back in the 80s and 90s it was decided that well young people would be better off just learning how to sit in front of a computer on the ass you know like for 16 hours a day typing on a keyboard and learning practical skills like woodworking or how to cook dinner or uh, how to like fix things around the house, how to repair stuff. They used to teach all this in school. And if they didn't, then the parents certainly would teach them. Right. But, but in the past two generations, both parents have been off to work, so they didn't have time to teach anything. And the school was focused on this kind of like uh, comparative advantage kind of thinking in, in the sense that, well, if we teach someone how to program a computer, right, and they can earn $40, $40 an hour, then there's, that's a lot better than teaching them how to like fix a flat tire on their, on their bicycle because that's maybe only worth $10 an hour or something like that. So 
my, my sort of like my initial spare time, I would almost say like ever since I started thinking in these patterns. So for the past 20 years, I've always sort of been in the process of trying to learn some new practical skill uh, where I don't have to go sort of like go pay a specialist to like fix a flat tire on a bicycle and I can do it for like 20, 25 cents in 10 minutes of time myself. Uh, so, so, so that kind of comes back to the thing I, I described in my book and, and this where it started becoming a philosophy of what I call the Renaissance man or the Renaissance person in which before industrialization, uh, a, a well-developed human was sort of like, a, yeah, yeah, development, I think, as a mature human should be able to do, be skilled in multiple things at the same time, not, not just one thing. I mean, if, if everything. Yeah. From, yeah. Society. Yeah, they were more. They were more of a, a generalist than in, than yeah, a specialist. Yeah. yeah. They were more of a generalist rather than a specialist. And even in more, let's say, less developed societies, let's you know, South America, New Guinea, wherever you want to go, where you have yeah. these uh, these tribes that live off the land, you it is shocking how many skills these people need in order. I think for the average person here living in the United States or a developed uh, a developed country you know, Denmark, uh, any other of the developed European countries as well. Uh, if they were to go and see how these people live, they would be kind of be blown away by how many skills that these people know. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting is for, uh, for the men um, in these, uh, in these particular tribes, um, from what I have seen from like documentaries and things like that, it's like, you can't even, you, you can't even have a family, like you can't have a wife and you can't have children until you learn all of these things. And it's like a huge skill set because you need to know how to live off of the land and be able to not only support yourself, but then be able to support a family. So in order to do that, when you're out in the forest or uh, wherever, wherever it is you may find yourself, you need to have an incredibly diverse skill set in order to survive. Yeah, I think, I think in one of the sections in, in, in my book, I say something like uh, something according to uh, you, you're educated in proportion to how well you can manipulate your environment. And in, in, by that metric, we are like woefully uneducated in the, in the modern world. We understand essentially an extremely narrow, like almost like a delta function of skills that we can earn money from. And then we use that money to compensate for all our other inadequacies and everything else with regards to our environment. We basically only know how to uh, pay for something or call someone and complain about it until it gets fixed and, you know, hang, 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 hang over either some dollars or a credit card number. But that, that's about it. We are essentially not educated anymore. Um, the education per se, I would say, exists at, at, at a higher level. It no longer exists at the, at the individual level with, with, as, as far as humans are concerned. So, I mean, what I mean by that is it's kind of like, so, my, my best metaphor is essentially like an anthill. So the individual ant probably does not understand what's going on. But different kinds of ants together are capable of running the anthill. And it's the same thing with humans. That system, however, is not the best for an individual ant. It's essentially dispensable. And I think the same thing is, 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 is the case with, with modern society. I mean, you can hire and fire people as you will. They're basically just components in, in, a, in a system. So that was my depressing talk for the day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think, it's, I, think it's a, I think it's a fairly accurate analogy of today's world, though. And 
No, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about people not learning the skills. I think though that at least maybe, you know, this may just be a sampling bias because I am surrounded by a lot of people who embrace kind of the more minimalistic lifestyle and just trying to figure out how to detach themselves from, you know, the restrictions that being in financial debt can cause someone. So, but they, they, they use YouTube a lot. And I think that YouTube is a great resource. It also is full of a lot of nonsense too. But if you can, if you know how to discern like the good from the bad, if you're a responsible consumer of information, that you can find an incredible amount of information on YouTube when it comes to how to fix anything. Right. You know how, yeah, you've got something wrong with your car, you know, like a 19, whatever, a 1986 Civic, and it's got this particular problem. You can find somebody on YouTube who probably has already solved that problem and they made a video about it. Uh, It's absolutely, it's absolutely remarkable what you can find on YouTube these days uh, when it comes to just solving problems like around the house, or if you want to learn, you want to learn how to make a clock, (laughs) you want to, you want to learn how to make a guitar, you want to learn how to fix your water heater, whatever it is, you can find a video on YouTube uh, from hopefully a credible individual and they will teach you how to do it as long as you put in the time and the effort. I mean, YouTube has definitely like fulfilled some of like the original promises of, 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 of mass media in terms of uh, or media in general, uh, in terms of, of, of creating a more informed uh, public. I mean, it's not, it's not all co-opted by propaganda. Like, like, I mean, no, no, no. Yeah. There's, there's, there's definitely plenty of good. They said the same thing about TV, right? Wow, now we have like a screen in the room of every house. Imagine all the things we could teach people with a with a with a device like that. And of course, it's like kind of like the internet turned into like cats and porn, right? The TV. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, uh, but but it could have been different. It just isn't, right? Because of I don't know if it's human nature, whether it's it's it's, it's human culture or what it is. I mean, the technological potential is there, right? But the, 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 I don't know if it's sort of like the physiological or the psychological or whatever cultural potential is apparently not yet there. Well, not there yet. Yeah. So going back to your philosophy. Yeah. Um, so I've read your book. It's fantastic. And there's an intellectual portion of it uh, that you talk about, that the Renaissance man is, uh, and you actually use the word, critical thinker in there, that a Renaissance man uh, must embrace critical thinking uh, and be open to being like a lifelong learner, uh, things of that nature. So I'm just really curious as to what critical thinking uh, means to you as far as like, your uh, philosophy goes. Yeah, I, I, I actually kind of forget that I wrote that in that way. Um, <laughs> what, what I think I meant is is, is this is probably more what falls in under like uh, intellectual capital, intellectual development and in that there's a general tendency in society to stop thinking or maybe not even begin thinking. Um, let me rephrase that. There's a general tendency to stop picking up a book at the time one leaves the educational system. As some, something like 95% uh, of people read 95% of the book. It's, 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 it's a phenomenal power law in, in, in the sense of the skew, the Pareto distribution on, on people who actually study or read books. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, a small, it's a small percentage, like you said. I mean, I think a lot of people, like, even, even, even college educated, 
as soon as they graduate, they don't pick up another book. Yeah, they just go off into their career. Kind of, and then, this kind of stops, right? Uh, so people become, they specialize to get a job and then they just stop, stop evolving, essentially. Um, and, and not just sort of like skill-based or sort of like, in, like intellectually, uh, in, in the sense of like, typically an intellectual would be someone who is interested in like philosophy and psychology and biology and all kinds of different different areas but they also kind of stop there's not much introspection going on anymore so there's mm -hmm. that too uh, by critical thinking um, I think I think my best definition of that is, is, is some kind of like metacognition thinking about thinking so if, if anyone can think or anyone can at least think they think but the, 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 the habit of thinking about what one is thinking about, that is, that is somewhat rarer. And if, you, if that habit does not exist, then the thinking can be used for somewhat destructive purposes. I mean, you don't, um, I don't, I don't think you, anyone will admit to the fact that they're not thinking critically, you know, right? It's, it's, no, it's, no, yeah, people, yeah, people definitely <laughs> will not admit, admit to that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those labels. Yeah, of course it's critical thinking, you know, because I really thought about it, right? <laughs> Did you, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Uh, so thinking about thinking, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, that is, I think, the essence of critical thinking yeah. uh, is that you just need to engage your metacognition, those higher order thinking skills, and just like start asking yourself, you know, why is it that I believe what I believe? How am I putting my thoughts together? Uh, how do I know what is true, what is false, et cetera? Yeah, but and, this, I mean, this, this kind of exists at different levels as well, which is, I think, I mean, I, I like, I mean, it, it seems like incredibly arrogant and I hate, I hate doing it, but I like to sort things in by like levels uh, or stages, because I mean, there's, uh, there's a tendency to, see okay there's either critical thinking or there isn't right uh whereas i think it's better to see well there's a like critical thinking of, of, of at, at some stage and then there's like the next stage and the next stage and the next stage and so on and so i like to try to identify various levels of how do people think about things and this this to me at least has made it a lot easier to navigate uh other people <laughs> uh, no absolutely yeah I, that makes yeah, that makes perfect sense too. Thinking about mm -hmm. it on a spectrum, um, so yeah. of you know how. So if you want to like, I don't know if you want to call the category or if you want to call it like yeah, thinking really or like metacognition <laughs> or whatever, yeah. and then it comes in a spectrum. People engage in higher order thinking and you know in, in a spectrum, right? So they're you know yeah. you have on one extreme the people that don't do it at all and they kind of just believe whatever and they just kind of go through the days and whatever happens, happens. And then I guess on the other end of the spectrum, you would have like the extreme, you'd have like the Spock types, right? The extreme logician yeah. and some, somewhat, someone of that nature. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I mean, there's like multiple, so multiple different psychologists have like worked on this, but I mean, like my favorite, like as a physicist, or like as a computationalist, uh, my, my favorite one was probably like Gregory Bateson, which, which had like a very simple model that thinking is essentially like a feedback process, so it's a regulator, right? You have an input, you have an output, and then at the zero level, you have you have no regulator. So just that's essentially just like an electrical wire, right? If you turn it on, you get on, yeah, right? Yeah. Then you can have like a feedback feedback loop going back from from the output that regulates the input somehow. Uh, so if if that was heat, you you have like a thermal regulator, like a radiator, like a heating system. So that's sort of like your general 
construction model of, of how it would go to higher orders. So the next level beyond that, then, then you would have a, a feedback on the feedback itself. You would have a way of changing the feedback mechanism. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you're talking about like loops, right? Like loops with yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a new so I'm thinking, I'm thinking like quantum field theory now. Like you're talking about higher orders and perturbations. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. 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 So this, in a sense, can go all the way up and then yeah, add an add infinitum, right? And then, but like yeah, yeah. each each higher order process, you may get a little bit better, but you lose. It, it's a vanishing returns essentially. But uh, no, no, no. I would say actually the in, in, uh, returns go up. Uh, incredibly fast in terms of how powerful the thinking gets oh you think so you, you don't think it's like an yeah, exponential decay yeah, like in, like in like quant like in quantum perturbation it's, theory it's, where, not, it's not like in qft where you have some yeah. kind of like one over n to some power yeah yeah, yeah. Like okay it just kills everything yeah it just kills uh, everything but i think i think it's 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 it's, it's more something like you this it's at least you know like n squared or n cubed as you go up by by how by by powers so no I I want to say anything bad about like a, your regular like house plant or something, but a house plant is, is a good example of uh, of a naive example of something with no feedback. So it just is it grows it doesn't do anything. So now all the biologists will tell me that it responds to temperature and humidity and so on and so forth. But if I talk to it, it doesn't talk back. It doesn't react to that. Whereas like a dog would do that. So a dog has a some, somewhat more complicated feedback system. Right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that a plant has no feedback system. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Uh, because yeah, I mean, they, they respond, they, they clearly respond to sunlight, right? I mean, the yeah, yeah, positions yeah. of the leaves, yeah. uh, but that is going to be slower and not nearly as complex as a feedback system of and, like and your, your pet dog or cat. In particular, yeah. it's gonna be very predictable, right? You can practically draw a curve where you like test, test it along the curve. Right, it's probably going to be some kind of linear feedback. Okay, so I can I understand your analogy now. Yeah, that makes that makes uh, sense yeah. to me that you're talking about. Well, I mean, I, I guess a greater than exponential growth. Then, if you're talking about uh, n cubed or something of that nature. Yeah, I mean, or, I'm just talking about a simple functional. Yeah, yeah, okay. So when and 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 your function becomes is 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 in some sense recursive. Right. So in terms of the Bateson levels, uh, so they go up in in terms of. Maybe it's better to think of it as sort of like your generic hardware. What, how, what, what kind of circuit can you make with a wire? You can connect, you can connect other things, but it can't really do much with the wire itself, except maybe it responds a little bit to heat, depending on, you know, the resistance goes, uh, I forget, does it up or down? Uh, it goes up, right? Uh, but that, that, that's, that's about it in terms of like external feedback. Whereas if you have like a diode or a transistor, that can do a lot more. And a microchip can do even more because that's several transistors regulating each other, right? So in terms of what I mean about uh, how 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 uh, so 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 the other thing is um, uh, it's it's kind of like when you talk about intelligence. What is what is uh, we, we can measure intelligence and of, of of humans based on a, on a test, but like how intelligent is a horse or or how do you do that, right? Uh, what is it? How intelligent is a rock? Does a rock have intelligence, right? Well, it, it knows how to fall down when you drop it, technically. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'm like disturbing your okay. sense of uh, gravitational theory here, right? But how do you know that theory is correct? You know, like that's just something we think. And, and also, like, how, how, what is an IQ of, say, like 400? What does that even mean, right? 
Yeah, I don't, yeah, I wouldn't even know. Yeah, nobody, I mean, you know, you can, I mean, it's very hard to know, but it's very, it's also easy to understand it in the abstract. In, in, the, in the sense that if, if in, in, in terms of feedback loops that the power they go to, you know, that you, you can kind of understand that that can go technically all the way up. Yeah, and I guess what's, yeah, I guess. Feedbacks to the third, to the Q, yeah. feedback quadruple, et cetera. But, but in terms of like what can humans actually do in that regard, it becomes a lot narrower. Uh, most, I think I, I have to be careful about saying most humans, some, 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 just, some would just react to a statement and then re repeat with a predictive response, right? Others would think about it. Others would think about what they're thinking about and whether the context matters, et cetera. Uh, maybe it's a little bit like juggling, right? So apparently I can't, I can't juggle with anything. Uh, as far as I understand, someone like me could learn how to juggle three balls in about an hour. Juggling four balls, though, is something that you would spend like days on, if not weeks. And I might be completely wrong here, but the point is that it's definitely a lot more than an hour. It's not two hours to add an, an extra ball. Whereas five balls, now you're talking like maybe like months, if not years, six balls, then you're like top of the line. So the difficulty goes up really, really fast. Uh, so it's, it's almost like, you know, if, 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 if sort of like the potential complexity of the system is like n to the n, like n to the n, a mathematician would easily understand that what that means, you know, that's something you can operate on, you have some kind of shorthand, you know, algebraic notation that describes n to the n, but trying to understand that actual number, if n is one, then it's easy, right? Concentrating if on, on, on the amount of manipulating figure for, for two is also easy because that's four. You can picture four things in your, in your head at the same time and sort of move them around. The average human can do about seven or eight. I think, I think the range is something between like four, you would say like a, for low intelligence, something like four or five, for high it's maybe eight or nine, but it's not much beyond that range. Whereas if N is three, then you're talking about 27. So in that sort of like simple physical model of what the human can process, then the end for humans is slightly over two, right? With tiny variations in there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. I, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I understand what you're talking about. The yeah. uh, complexity goes up very quickly. Yeah, so, so in terms of like the Renaissance, man, the thing is there that uh, in general, we just like uh, operate with sort of like the idea that they are currently two stages to like uh, human development uh, and that is like you have child on one side and then you have adult on the other side so once you're like 18 or 21 then you become an adult and then it just stops there and you don't just do your thing until you retire uh, and i i am trying very hard to resist that i think that like you can keep growing if you actually want to in that regard. no i and i i think it's an absolute tragedy that people don't keep yeah. developing and there's just so many interesting things out there uh and i mean i mean look at the statistics i mean like like we were talking about earlier that people just kind of put down their books as soon as they graduate college and i'm not saying that people don't watch documentaries i actually think documentaries are a great a great way beyond uh just reading to get information as well and i i think it's easier it may not you may not get as much information out of it as if you're reading the book particularly depending upon like how you read a book like if you go through a book and you like highlight it, and you make tabs and things of that nature, you're going to get 
more out of the book than if you were to just read it. And I'm talking about like nonfiction. I'm not talking about uh, fiction novels, but like the nonfiction, the books that will help you develop your, uh, your knowledge base. Uh, but anyway, I mean, yeah, people just don't do it. They don't regularly engage in watching documentaries or they don't engage in uh, reading nonfiction. A lot of people will watch, prefer to watch movies, um, fiction, maybe based on some nonfiction events, but mostly fiction oriented, or they read uh, fiction novels. And, you know, that isn't going to help you to really increase your knowledge base, at least not to the same degree that you would if you were to uh, watch documentaries and read nonfiction. Uh, you know, of course, movies have facts embedded into them, oftentimes, depending on what type of movie you're watching. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a bit of a shame. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of lifelong learning, and I know you are as well. And that's kind of, you, you talked about that a lot in your book, that the Renaissance man is a lifelong learner. And I, uh, you know, so, I, mean, I could not agree more with that. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, in some sense, I mean, that's just my preference in that sense. I mean, the alternative being like lifelong consumption, right? Where you don't have to learn anything. So, so what I'm presenting is more of, I would say, an alternative of another thing one could do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's sort of like the added side effect of being able to live like a rich life with less, less money if you learn practical things. I would say, <laughs> yeah, uh, but but I don't I don't think it's uh, it's realistic to 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 sort of like expect that we all become like a learning society in that regard. Uh, but uh, it, it's sort of like the question: Where do you set the dial? What 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 where where it should be? So right now it's like really all the way over where uh, learning is almost not a thing outside of. Uh, I mean, we, 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 as a society, we kind of brag about our, like our college education, uh, graduation rate, right? Or how many people go to high school, how many people go to college. So these are metrics, but there's like nothing measuring anything after that. I mean, that's weird, right? I think that's weird. Yep, I, I agree <laughs> with you. I agree with you. I don't understand yeah. it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, similar to we were talking about earlier with the financial aspect, and how that is essentially non-existent in the public education system. Uh, critical thinking is, from my observation, non-existent in right, right, yeah. the public education system. I don't know how it was for you in Denmark, but I know Not here, it. yeah, I know here in the United States, essentially it was just fact memorization and then regurgitation. Right. It wasn't, how do you put your thoughts together? We didn't learn anything. Like for me, um, critical thinking isn't, uh, isn't just about like, thinking about thinking, but like then, like learning the tools as well. So um, for example, uh, what, I, what I really talk a lot about with intelligent speculation is, uh, is informal logic. And how do you essentially structure your thoughts, arguments, et cetera, from first order, principle, first order principles or like axioms, things of that nature. And uh, I mean, I didn't learn anything about philosophy, nothing in, uh, in my public education. And, you know, I was even shocked as a scientist that I wasn't required to take any sort of formal classes in philosophy. Uh, I mean, I took a lot of mathematics and mathematics, I think you could argue, you learn uh, logical arguments, things of that nature through proofs and things of that nature. But I, I was just kind of shocked that even in my university education as a scientist, that I wasn't required to take like any philosophy of science courses or any other philosophy courses. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it's very easy to sort of like get, get into some kind of like grand. I mean, there's not uh, an emergent conspiracy about all this that thanks <laughs> for the fish, the water they're swimming in, because if they did, they would break the system. I don't know. This is almost like Matrix, the movie kind of thinking. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I can appreciate that though. Maybe and... people would become very unhappy if they started questioning everything. I mean, certainly haven't to me in the beginning, like what are you saying? Like Star Trek isn't true, right? Or future Star Trek <laughs> isn't true. Um, so there's, there's this like, there's this joke someone told on my forum a, a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago. Um, so I'm probably retelling it pretty badly, but I think it's, uh, it's sort of very illustrative of, um, of the sort of like um, perspectives of different different fields. So the so, so the question. So you have a, you have a uh, you have a scientist, a physicist, and you have an engineer and a mathematician. And the question is, uh, and, and, and the question is, so you have a red ball, and you 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 you're supposed to add. Uh, bad telepathy. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I think <laughs> I've actually heard this one. The red ball, you drop it. How high does it bounce? Okay. So, 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 so you ask a physicist, an engineer, and a mathematician like that question, and I've certainly recognized that in my myself as a physicist, and definitely nails it. So the physicist would either either do some like back of the envelope uh, calculation and, and get the answer right within like a margin of like 40, 50 percent or something, or they would build uh, build a um, a microscopic computational model based on first principles going all the way back and simulate like the hydrodynamic shock and probably get the answer right uh, pretty accurately but it would take them like three years to get it or something like that so that's the physicist so the engineer they would quickly look it up in that bouncy red ball table and get the answer right within one percent so the mathematician would uh, paint the ball blue and refer back to the blue ball theorem, which is already solved. <laughs> but I think the point is the point is that those are very three very different perspectives and approaches to how to deal with those questions. What the physicist is doing is essentially asking why is it the way it is, and they're trying to reconstruct the entire understanding based on like the microscopic properties and the bouncing balls. So they're interested in knowing why it bounces. The the engineer is interested in how it works, right? So they take essentially the fact that the button ball bounces for granted, and they just don't want to know how how the ball bounces. That's sort of like how how high it bounces back. And, they want uh, the most accurate answer. They just want it. They and they also have the most accurate, and the fastest yeah. answer, right? Uh, the simplest answer, in some sense. Uh, and the mathematician is interested in the what. Right. What is this problem? Well, it's a bouncing ball problem. Can we like reduce it to a previously understood problem? And I've, I've gotten into a lot of hot water arguing about these the, 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 practical, the practical sort of like just philosophical disagreements with it between engineers and scientists in, in those two terms. I mean, that's not, it's not such, such a thing that one is better than the other. They're definitely uh, complementary, right? And it's also not like scientists are not interested at all in the hows or the whats, but the, 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 the main focus is on this particular why and then the how and the what is just sort of like something you bring in a little bit. The engineer is primarily focused on the how and the why and the what is, is of secondary importance and similarly with the, with the mathematician. And I think that's also kind of like going back to the to the ERE philosophy as I develop it is pretty 
pretty sort of explicative, clear that it was developed by a by a, a scientist. Yeah, yeah. That 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 was interested in the why. So it's just like from microscopic principles, you know, like all. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's very clear, though, that it's a physicist and not just any scientist because yeah, of the yeah. first the first principle natures of your philosophy. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, it is very, very first principles. And I mean, it, it just has a physicist flair to it. Um, and if you told me going into it, if I didn't know that you were a physicist by trade, I probably could guess after reading the book <laughs> yeah, yeah. that you were a physicist, that a physicist wrote this book. Yeah. And I, in my opinion, and I'm obviously biased here, but I think that there's something very, very powerful about that skill set that a physicist get, gets right. uh, through its training uh, through first principles. Yeah. Uh, I'm also biased, that, but I agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just think that it's, in, it's incredibly powerful and it has led to incredible advancements in human knowledge and the technologies that we have today. Some of the most profoundly impacted technologies are, you know, of course, they're all areas of science, but uh, you know, there's some arguments made that perhaps physicists, even physicists who went into other areas and are a bit of polymaths, but then they go in with this first principles thinking and they kind of really change the game and all of a sudden we're going down a new, uh, a new trajectory. Yeah, uh, I mean, even, even, even in modern times, the, I, I think that the most popular and impactful, I guess, technologist, uh, of our time is, is Elon Musk. Uh, you know, of course, there you can make arguments for other people too, but out of the Silicon Valley space, you have Musk who is just disrupting all of these different industries. He's a huge popular icon. Uh, and he's a physicist by training. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's-, he's yeah, I, mean, I mean, if you like, uh, compared to practically any other like personal finance pro uh, program, it's, 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 I would say, written by engineers or, technologists in that sense and it's more about how do we optimize the current system not how do we build our why is the current system the way it is and let's completely reconstruct it instead it's more like okay we have the system as it is which styles should i tune to like maximize my 401k or if i die this yeah. way so that's the engineering approach but with that you can't you can't change the behavior of, of a machine by like adjusting it's sort of like no, yeah, by fine tuning it, and you still have the same you still have the same machine. But if you can go go in and say, well, do I need this machine? Can I make a, a better machine? Yeah. Uh, then yeah, that's that's how you kind of really shift uh, one's thinking and one's trajectory. Particularly if you can make a, a better a better model. Uh, you know, going back to like Elon Musk. Okay, Elon Musk with SpaceX, for example, he didn't say, I'm going to take the existing rockets and what with what we have and i'm going to just kind of fine tune the rockets that we already have he went in and said i'm going to create brand new rockets and i'm going to make them reusable and that's yeah. like that was completely game changing i'm not saying that the rocketry is brand new some of it is but uh uh what i should say is i, I i'm not going to say that he didn't reuse some engineering all right because obviously you're you're building upon you know decades of of, of rocket rocket science but he went in and he kind of changed the game when it came to like saying the notion that I'm going to reuse rockets and I'm going to build better. I'm going to build uh, different rockets uh, with, with great engineering and then I'm going to reuse them. So it was just completely, it was just a, a different way of thinking that he went yeah, into. So like in terms of like baits and like in the feedback loops, 
and, and if we think of that as wiring, then the sort of the task of the, of, of the physicist and the way they're sort of taught to, to operate is to find the structure of a given problem, uh, which metaphorically would mean the wiring rather than tuning the wiring. And the thing that again, and that relates to critical thinking in the sense that critical thinking is making sure that the wiring is correct, that the wiring, your structure of understanding actually matches reality. Because there's, there's nothing more, I would say, obnoxious to a physicist than someone trying to argue a point about reality with the wrong, wrong structure. Right, say so, uh, they insist that the Earth is flat. You know, technically, it is round, <laughs> but they have to essentially hammer that point in and find some way to argue that the Earth is flat because that is their core belief. That is the structure that must be adhered to. That makes sense. I mean, it's it's like it's like kind of like the human body, right? It only works if the skeleton is put together in the correct way. If you put the both arms on on the on the left side, say it does not matter how well you tune, tune your arm software if your arm is not positioned in the, in the right, correct hardware spot. Uh, maybe my metaphor is like decaying here, but <laughs> I think- No, I no, think no, yeah, I mean, I, I understand, I understand yeah. the point that you're trying to make, yeah. yeah. That, that the, the structure that you build the problem in is really, really important. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, building upon that idea, Jacob, you know, solving problems in physics, maybe, uh, you know, maybe this might be a better analogy is that I oftentimes would be just infuriated going through training, like taking courses and things of that nature, because you can, you can set up these problems. Like you go to approach a problem and you kind of set up the structure. Okay. And then within the structure, you have the mathematics and then you crank the mathematics and you get something out on the end. But if that initial model is wrong or the structure, what you get out on, on the back end while you've got an answer, it's completely wrong. It doesn't reflect. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't reflect reality. Um, so garbage in, garbage out. Go. I guess it speaks to the importance of making sure that the the base model or structure, as you put it, uh, is 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 correct. And, yeah, I mean that's the difference between a curiosity and precision, right? And, and you can also see it sort of like in the um, the development of a, of a physicist as, as sort of like they mature as they get older and more experienced. Uh, if you go to like an undergraduate class, uh, the, the argument will typically be something, you know, blah, yada, yada, yada. And this is given by, it's a huge equation. And then yada, 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 and the result is a huge equation. So, so, so I would say at that level, you're mostly operating sort of like without uh, the wisdom of experience. Yeah. So it's, it's mostly technical, it's derivation, derivation. And if the derivation is there, well, then, then that's the answer. Whereas uh, sort of like at the more mature level, it's more like, yeah, well, what is actually going on in this particular physical problem? What, what, are, what are the core concepts here? What, what is the important part and what can we disregard? And that's, that's where you get to sort of like the back of the envelope thing. But that, that takes like years of experience. I think mathematicians call it mathematical maturity, but they mean something else by it. I don't know what the, what the physics term is, but uh, there's like different learning levels in the same way that uh, you can be like technically brilliant as a, as, a, as a sort of like a young physicist wannabe, but that is not going to carry the whole thing all the way up. Uh, yeah, I know looking at my own training and in the beginning, it was mostly just kind of pushing equations around 
and learning like from examples, like doing a lot of examples, but not really understanding what was going on. And then over time, as you begin to study these same problems over and over and over again, you, you begin to really understand what's going on from a, and you develop this, uh, this physical intuition. And right, I think, yeah, yeah I, I think that that's, yeah, I think that's what you're, I think that's what you're probably going yeah. for yeah. is you develop this physical intuition that only comes from years of intense study within yeah. physics. And yeah. you, you, you begin, you look at a problem and then you kind of, you, you have an idea of how it's supposed to be solved. You know, like why the charges or why the balls or whatever, you can kind of see how they're, how they're going to move and then how you need to structure the problem. And then you kind of, and then you work it out. But that, I mean, for me, I, I just remember struggling tremendously in the beginning to get that nailed down, uh, which is why personally I struggled with like quantum mechanics so much is because I couldn't physically intuit what was going on. It's a lot of linear algebra and partial differential equations and things of that nature, boundary value problems. And, but you just don't really understand um, but eventually you develop a physical intuition for that as well. Uh, and I think that that's a lesson kind of visualizing what is going on, but you get more of a mathematical feel for how things work on the quantum level and how they should look and operate. Uh, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's impossible. Or, or it should not be allowed to try to jump ahead of that. The technical aspects. You see a lot of like popularized uh, nonfiction books where it's just, well, let's just skip all the technical stuff because everybody hates that and then jump straight to the conclusion. And then you have these kind of like uh, popular books about string theory where people talk about membranes uh, and whatever without really having the slightest clue of what they actually are technically. I think that's like a huge liability when when <laughs> presented in, 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 in that way. Uh, so, uh, so like, so like with the Bateson stuff, Bateson is not the only one. There are like multiple different uh, different ways of learning uh, learning models in terms of stages. So uh, Dreyfus is, is another one. It's probably my, my favorite. Uh, and then I even made one myself for, for the book, which is the one I'm most familiar with. Uh, but uh, so, so that's like a six level thing where as a, as a as sort of like a, a noob in a, in, a, in a given subject, you start just by copying what you see. Uh, you, you see, and this could go for any field. So, like, let's let's uh, let, let's. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, I know precisely uh, what you're talking about. You talk about that with financial, like financial understanding and things of that nature. Yeah, it could be financial. Yeah, the, the, like the, the back of the book. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, so for instance, to take martial arts for, as an example, I don't think if you're learning karate, you can't jump straight to like thinking like a fighter. You have to do your punches first, and then yeah. endless, like until you finally realize that. All, all this was just training you to the idea of punch, but you don't necessarily just punch straight and also punch in other directions, right? Uh, but but that, that sequence essentially goes from like copying and once you can copy things, you can start comparing them. So that's level two. Compiling, then you start making lists, but you have to sort of, that's, that's sort of like the base knowledge. That's a lot of different factoids about the situation that you now have compiled. It's just the same thing you, you talk about like doing like, momentum calculations and charge balls flying around and colliding and all that. So that's, that's, that's sort of like the ingredients for thinking. Now you're practiced in like all these different physical concepts, but it was really the concepts that mattered. Um, a lot of beginners prefer like 
to have information presented in that way. You know, they just want, you know, like a quick, simple plan with a few tips in, you know, like just give me a list of talking points. Uh, and yeah, I'm probably going off on a tangent. Let me continue the <laughs> sort of like the list. Yeah. So once you have your, your, your compiled list of factoids, you can start com computing with them or calculating. So that's, that's where you get to sort of like the undergraduate physicist level where this equation is given by, some, by, by this complex expression. Uh, you, it's essentially the, the sort of like the end point of the textbook problem. So like the, the torture you're put through like the first four years of, 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 of training where you have a closed end problem, you know you have all the ingredients because you've coded them, you've compared them, you've compiled them, they're definitely in the chapter right before if the problem is at the end, end, of, the, end of the chapter, right? And you just have to sort of like compute something out of it. Whereas once you go to grad school, then you start having to, then you go to the next level which are like coordinating different areas of knowledge but not to coordinate different areas of knowledge, you have to have different areas. You can't just have one. So maybe the answer to your problem is now falling in the second book you haven't read yet, right? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of like where the research thing comes in. And now you're sort of already talking about a level of thinking that I would say only a minority of people have actually engaged thoroughly. And once you become habituated to that, then you can actually start creating new theories because you can coordinate different problem sets, right? So that becomes your sort of like creative output, but that only happens after you've gone through the copying, comparing, compiling, computing, coordinating. Yeah, you can't, you can't skip the gauntlet, just if you want to call it that. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you can't, can't create some shit, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 you can't, yeah, you can't, you yeah. can't skip any of those steps. And it takes intense work and effort and time in order to be able to do that. It's a little bit like, you know, art, artwork, right? Uh, where in order to actually make some art, you have to know which rules to break. You can't just throw paint on the wall and call it art. Even yeah. if people, even if normal people who don't know what artists I have no understanding of art. But you know these like like when they do like a TV show or something, just for fun, they have a professional painting and on one side and then they have like six year old having thrown some paint on something and then you have like the uh, the audience deciding which one of those is like the real art and they can't tell. So some fields are like that, but other fields are not. And for that, yeah. the artist can tell, but the audience cannot. So you got to know which rules you can you, you can break first in order to to actually break them properly. So yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, like we were just talking about, that only really comes with a lot of experience and intense effort to yeah. where you can actually get to that point where you're like, okay, I kind of understand everything, and now I'm going to push the boundaries and see where I can go. Uh, and at, you know, as somebody who is doing research now, it's taken me an incredible amount of time to be able to get to this point, right. uh, years and years, of, years and years and effort. And I, you know, for, uh, I'm sure you can appreciate that. Uh, you know how long it took, uh, in your training before you were able to get to a point where you can start creating uh, new science, new knowledge, essentially. Um, but I'm just curious. So like with the critical thinking, uh, I feel a little bit spoiled as a physicist because I feel as though I assimilated a lot of critical thinking skills from yeah, from our training because yeah. we have a lot of you know this this first principle type of training so that in my opinion that leads very nicely into or uh, moves laterally very nicely into like uh, thinking about thinking and kind of the critical thinking aspect 
but I'm just curious as to like the average person, what are your thoughts on them being able to develop some of these critical thinking skills? Uh, again, we're spoiled as somebody that has gone through yeah, yeah. not only higher education, but the physics in particular with the first principles thinking. But, you know, we both admitted that this isn't something that you learn in the public education system. So the average person, how can they, like, what are your thoughts on them being able to assimilate some of these skills? Where should they look? I mean, I guess I have a platform, but uh, yeah, I mean, what, what are your, I guess, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, in some in, in some sense, I think on, on a systemic level, it's practically hopeless. But I think it's more like you can maybe reach individuals one at a time and try to 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 move so to to move them slightly ahead. Uh, so, like there's a as this a theory of moral development by Kohlberg, which was like one of the first first models I saw saw for that. Uh, where the, the, the trick in, in, in terms of talking to people is never to sort of like engage them too far ahead of where they already are. You always have to be like just slightly one step ahead talk, talking to people. So for example, um, the majority of people morally are just trying to be sort of nice or fit in with what their sort of tribe or the people they identify with think about certain matters. Morality is defined by what my in-group thinks, right? Yeah. The next, the next level uh, beyond that is going to a more uh, legal framework where what is moral is what, is, what, what the law says. So I'm not just trying to be nice, I'm actually trying to obey the law. And if that means me not being nice, then I'm not gonna be nice because the law is the law. So if you want to move someone from sort of like the being nice to the in-group perspective to like, we do this because it's the law, then you have to sort of like create some cognitive dissonance in terms of like, what are the situations where being nice is, does not actually create a uh, moral outcome or an ethical outcome. Similarly, uh, there's a level beyond that, uh, which is sort of like the societal level where people begin to realize that the law might not be sort of like the, uh, the, the final word in matters, that people actually vote on, on, on what the law should be. And so for someone who sort of like sit in, well, the law is law because it's the law kind of thinking, uh, you have to put in sort of like steep doubt in, in, in terms of like, why is the law the way it is, right? Uh, it's just the same thing like, uh, so I know you wanted to talk about this if you go to like social media and, and, and Facebook, especially Facebook and YouTube and, and also like Google searches where, where, where things are presented you, to you for like maximum emotional engagement, recurring engagement rather than actual uh, truth. Uh, you have to, that, that there, there, there are a lot of people like interacting on those networks who think they are well informed because they read everything in their feed and that um, they are, have thought about that critically uh, because if there's something they're in doubt about, they just go and Google it and then you find some web pages that confirms it. So now they think they have like done their research, right? Uh, the, next, the, the way to sort of like get out of that loop, which is obviously not thinking critically, it's just sort of like it, essentially regurgitating what the algorithm is feeding. 
is to begin to ask, why do you think you're seeing, why do you think your Facebook feed is that way? Do you think your Facebook feed is the same as my Facebook feed? Or do you think it's somehow different, right? Or do you think your Google results are the same as my Google results for the exact same query, right? So at, at each and every sort of like level, a stage of insight, there's a stage beyond it. So in order to move people to the next stage, you have to sort of create a dissonance at, the, at their current level and then let them then themselves come to a conclusion, well, maybe I don't know everything. I think like the most dangerous thing here with, with, with uh, say thinking or critical thinking or any, any kind of badge is that uh, declaring oneself, well, I'm a master of critical thinking, say, so I don't have to think about this anymore because I already know. Yeah, everything. no, that's a, that's a dangerous <laughs> trap. Yeah, <laughs> that's a dangerous trap. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I think it's, it's, I think it's like, I think it's like learning the, uh, the critical thinking, what you're just talking about that, <clears throat> even though you may have a PhD or you may engage in reading books regularly for you then to declare yourself that you know everything is ridiculous Yeah, uh, because you just can't yeah, know yeah, everything. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's actually a very strong physicist trap. So I, I saw a cartoon once, like uh, once, once you're a physicist over the age of, I don't know, 40, 50 or something like that, then you should probably be put down for your own good. Because otherwise <laughs> you, start, you start speculating about all kinds of things you have no idea on <laughs> and think of it. Think you're actually good at it. Um, that 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 I think so. So like if if say like you have phys, physics physics background, you're very good at like dissembling things and figuring out what the structure is. But that also makes it very tempting to uh, to, to try to do the shortcut on all the technical work, all the all the copying and compilation and, and you know derivation and pushing things around. All the parts that go into things, just skip that part. Well, I already understand structures. I can easily go over and do biology. You do have some advantages as a, phys uh, as, as, as a physicist, but you're probably not as, as, as good as a biologist who came up from the from the ranks in, in, in that regard. Uh, yeah, that's just that's just pure arrogance. Then I think it's yeah, yeah. Where, uh... <laughs> very arrogant. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's definitely an uh, kind of so so. I mean, but but but. We also know that that arrogance is there, right? So and we try to correct for it. So, so that's that's. I mean, it's kind of like the the, the Dunning Kruger thing. Is hopefully you're on the on the on the right hand hand, hand side of the graph, not the yes. left hand. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I'm I'm well aware these days of how much I don't know, which is yeah. terrifying, yeah. Uh, because the as somebody who is uh, very educated, I, I mean I. I, I don't feel bad saying that at all. I spent a, lot, a long, long time uh, learning things, uh, right. learning about the world. But the, and because of that, there's a, a profound sense of humility that comes with it because you are intimately, you become intimately aware at some point of how much you don't know. But what scares me the most is looking back at my youth about how confident I was in certain things right. and that a lot of people are stuck there and then they yeah. never move beyond that spot. And they walk around with, this just astronomical level of confidence in how the world works and because they are so confident in whatever it is that you know they're they're professing people will listen to them because people latch on to that confidence and it's and usually because, i would say it's usually it could be very 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 wrong yeah and because people can't tell the difference often and then there's that yeah and there's that they're like oh i don't know this person is incredibly confident therefore you know perhaps 
that perhaps they have like some letters after their name or the way that they're dressed, the way that they look, all of these things factor in. And then you have, for example, now we have an epidemic of like fake experts on YouTube or, you know, with Instagram influencers who are promoting nonsense, nonsense products, but they're beautiful people. So therefore they must know what they're talking about because they're beautiful people. Um, and we know, we know that people are attracted and will think that, uh, more physically attractive people must be telling the truth or they're, they're more likable. So therefore they're, they're telling the truth. And th this just, just isn't the case. Uh, I'm not saying that it always happens, but uh, you know, going back to the Dunning-Kruger, it's crazy. Yeah, so yeah, two things. So yeah, I've definitely noticed the same thing in myself that I was more confident uh, 10 years ago and 20 years ago. Yeah. And I, now because I, I know a lot more exceptions to things back then, I would just say, well, this, this is the way it is because like I derived it right, I pushed my equations around. But now I see all the exceptions and some, sometimes that can be so much stymieing in, in terms of what I'm willing to say about something because I know there's more to it typically. Uh, in, in, in terms of like people not being able uh, to tell the difference, uh, I spent uh, a lot of time, maybe way too much time like on, on climate science and climate wars. And uh, so as based on my background, which was like hydrodynamical simulations on the surface of neutron stars doing chemical reactions there uh, on nuclear chemistry. Uh, that is, the structure of that is practically identical to, to what you find in a general circulation model on this. So I know a lot of what goes into a climate science model. I'm not an expert, but I know a lot about it. But I spent hundreds of posts arguing like long posts on my forum arguing with people who would Google something and say like, what about it's the sun? And what about, you know, like, it's the new ice age or oh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And the problem there was that most people would see that as a debate between two equally informed, like, I can't tell the difference, right? That's a sort of like a, like a, like a, like a lady. Yeah, yeah you're talking, yeah, well, you're referring to false balance, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, at the same time, it's so difficult because it's like, do you just let these people spew their nonsense? Because yeah. then there's other people, there's other people saying, well, okay, uh, this person is presenting this. Maybe they'll go read it. Uh, maybe they'll think that that person who made that original post is an expert and then they'll start believing that. Yeah. So it becomes difficult. Like, how do you, how do you even deal with that? Yeah, uh, I, I actually, I think I actually, I think I succeeded. I mean, so after many, 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 so we're, we're really talking like hundreds of posts, like the longest threads ever on the forum I hold, uh, where I would sort of refute these points one by one, you know, like here's a new but okay. I will sort of like give you the benefit of the doubt that you're not some kind of troll, which often they are, and then like refute it point by point. Uh, and that, that never works. Uh, what finally worked was me spending, I think it was like four hours one morning building a, sort of like an, an entire layer as an atmosphere model from scratch, like a slab model essentially of the atmosphere. And then showing, okay, I know what I'm talking about. What these guys are objecting to, so, so, so that was I think something like 17 steps. First you do this, first you do that, and then you do that. Uh, uh, and then, then it became clear to sort of like the audience that okay maybe maybe jacob knows what he's talking about and the other guys just sort of like googling random words you just read uh, what i found practically impossible except um, very few exceptions 
was to get people to read even like chapter one on like an introductory climate science book. Because a lot of this was essentially like basic stuff. I mean, a lot of like the objections of nihilism is uh, are legit in a sense that they were presented uh, like 150 years ago or 100 years ago and by legitimate scientists, but then quickly refuted and forgotten. Uh, so like like see like uh, radiative uh, saturation, right? So so I don't know if you have that argument, and it's probably. Knowing sort of like about brain weaknesses is a little dangerous to repeat it, right? But if you take a gas tube and uh, because people might think it's actually an issue, right? If you take a gas tube and shine light through it, right? It's a, the gas in it will absorb certain wavelengths, right? And yes. that's, yeah. that's, 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 that's how you get an absorption uh, spectrum. And if you increase the density of the gas, then at one point you will have essentially taken away that entire wavelength, right? And so the argument was like, at some point, if we keep emitting CO2, then it's not going to matter anymore because- Because we're just going to be blanketed in a CO2 smog? Right? <laughs> no, 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 because the, 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 saturated, the, the saturation is complete, so adding more will not stop further- Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, and, and actual physicists, like real life physicists, or even in some fame, and I'm not going to name mention anyone by name here but yeah that's that's there's been a couple out there uh, but who have like no apparently no knowledge of the, what happens if you're not no longer looking at a gas tube in a lab but actually looking at the, uh, the entire atmosphere where you also have where the Doppler shifts of, of, of the moving particles in the gas become relevant uh, how that would increase the absorption spectrum so they would not know that because they have no domain uh, knowledge of that particular aspect of the physics, but it, it still they would sort of like argue with the authority of the physicist. It's, well, it's and this is and this is part of the problem, you know, with the global yeah. warming thing is that you do have experts that aren't necessarily domain experts, but they carry credentials like a PhD after their name, and yeah. then they are so arrogant to think then that okay, well, I'm going to challenge the domain experts even though this isn't my area of expertise. And, you know, as much res as you should respect that individual for whatever their area of expertise is, but when they go outside of their domain of expertise, right. you should then be skeptical of what it is that they're talking about. Yeah, just sort of like a, maybe a possibly well-informed, but maybe you're like misinformed layman. Yeah, they're not like going to know. Yeah, and it is, it is still shocking to me to this day, the number of people that will not acknowledge anthropogenic global warming. Uh, even though we have a scientific consensus surrounding it, it's like somewhere around 97%, they say. Uh, but above and beyond that, then not only do they acknowledge it, but then they don't even know what a scientific consensus is in the term of what, what consensus means when you put scientific before it. So, yeah, for right. example, consensus, when you use it colloquially, the average person thinks, oh, like it's just a group of people agreeing on something. But in science, it's very specific. It means that all of the data, not the scientists, it's all of the data, the collection of all of the evidence, the science from all the different sciences that studied, uh, in this case, the atmosphere. So, you know, you're talking about chemistry, you're talking about geology, you're talking about maybe even geography, uh, you're talking about physics. And then all of these studies collectively over decades of work from thousands of scientists across the planet, it all points to the same conclusion yeah, that, that humans, that. yeah, but they, 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 don't, they don't realize that either. Uh, that's something that's not communicated um, in the public education system, maybe yeah. even maybe even in college as well. I, I just there is a real disconnect these days 
in my in my observation between the work that scientists do and how the public perceives the work that they do. Right, right, yeah, and then I think a lot of that comes from sort of like how scientists are also portrayed in, in TV or movies in, in, in the sense that uh, you just write a bunch of equations up on like a glass wall or something and then you solve the whole thing in an afternoon. Yeah. Uh, the, the 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 institutional knowledge and the hundred I mean they don't show the show the library with all the the, the books supporting everything that's being being written up up there uh, on 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 the board uh, so so the confidence is not showing just sort of like uh. <laughs> <laughs> but I find that frustrating and I mean I think that's uh, also I mean kind of goes back to my idea of a scientist as like a naive eighteen year old was actually kind of like that. You know, uh, you just have a bright, you have some kind of glimmer of insight and you just write down some equations and then you prove the Nobel Prize or something. But that's, that's not how it works at all anymore. Or if it ever did, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, um, so like, uh, if, um, you, you ask the, uh, on, 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 on your high school tests, uh, so one of the questions is like, what is the scientific method? And it has some kind of clear step-by-step -step hypothesis verification, the hypothesis experiment verification of rejection, right? But doing real science, that's generally not how that works at all in my experience. <laughs> and I mean, like, I don't know if you agree with that, but it's, 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 it's a lot more sort of like a circular thing. You try- Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's very cyclic. And it's not like, we, are, we aim to, prove or disprove this exact thing and now we're just gonna go like straight from here to here. Uh, no, that's, yeah, I mean, that, how, how they present the scientific method, I suppose, in an educational context is not entirely how it's done in practice. But right. I, think, I mean, in my opinion though, I think, it, I think the simplified step-by-step -step does do a good job of communicating what exactly the scientific method is. And even in that simplified form, I think it still does a good job of communicating to people that it is a method. It's not a belief system. That it's just it's some it's some sort of rigorous framework that we have developed in order to try to learn something novel about the world. Yeah, but I think I mean at least the way I was taught science, and that was again sort of text textbook problems and and essentially known experiments, which uh, say like. Uh, a falling falling ball, you know, like uh, distance equals half gravitational acceleration t squared or something like that. So, so it would be something like a set up an experiment that verifies this, right? It would, and 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 that is that follows the scientific method exactly, right? Here's the hypothesis: like uh, s equals half a t squared. And then you plot something on a graph and you fit the graph and then you get maybe the gravitational constant out of it, right? Yep. With some uncertainty, but in reality, the question should more be like, um, what, is, what is the actual uh, equation for, for the trajectory of the, of, of the falling ball? And that might have been something completely different depending on what kind of experimental setup the students have come up with. So a lot of the creativity is essentially taking, taken away in, in the school setting in order to sort of like narrowly funnel people in towards a certain conclusion. You see what I mean? So, 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 so the, critical, the, the critical thinking aspect is, is taken away in the teaching setting, I think. Yeah, and uh, that might be due to time constraints because I know for, let's say, for <laughs> example, if experiments were completely yeah. unconstrained, it was probably, I don't even know if students would be able to finish. 
Yeah, I think <laughs> you just yeah. to figure that stuff out. But the question is, would you learn more or less doing that that way? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's a it's a very interesting question in pedagogy. How exactly should you, you know, yeah. teach in general? Like how 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 is it best to teach this material to students? Sure. Uh, you know, and the you know, going back with the critical thinking stuff, I you know, I think that the students would probably pick up more if they had to think harder about certain yeah, problems. Right, right. But, yeah, but um, you, you know, know due to, to students, right? That a lot yeah. of them just sort of like ask the smart one and then copy what they know, right? Yeah. Yeah. You probably have them to you too, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, I mean <laughs> I you know I'm not gonna sit here and say that I was the uh, the brightest physicist uh, yeah. among my peers or anything like that, <laughs> but we uh, no, I I certainly tried to do as much work as I could on my own and I don't know about yeah, I worked a lot, like particularly in graduate school, we worked a lot in groups um, just because the material becomes so complicated that it's just yeah. easier to work in groups and to bounce ideas off each other. Uh, you know, in particular, you know, particularly uh, like when I was taking theoretical physics courses, like general relativity, like I had a, I had like a group, a core group of people that we would get together and work on the homework sets uh, just because they were just very hard and long. But, you know, early, earlier on, you know, in grade school, and throughout like middle school and high school, I mean, I, I guess, suppose I let people copy when, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, they, when they needed to, you know, you're just trying, you're just trying to fit in, you know, we were talking, we were talking no, earlier, we, yeah, we were talking earlier about right, you know, right. the social aspect of an educational setting and that and people that's, that's, in general that's... want to, want to try to fit in and to be liked if you're kind of a little bit more nerdy or whatever. You kind yeah, of let people, yeah. you let people copy because then they like you, so. And that's, that's sort of like part of what sort of, moving moving one level up from like the individual setting the institutional setting also has to account for that effect right when they try to teach stuff and yeah. from like the institutional perspective they might not be so interested in uh, in sort of like turning out people with a great understanding of the scientific method just to pick that one as they are in sending people on to the next institution right I yeah. mean, that seems to be sort of like an increasing problem now where the motivation is to get more and more people in, into, into higher education, uh, or so tertiary education. And because people, uh, humans, are not getting more intelligent, that means that if you want like 70% or 80% into college as opposed to say 40%, you have to reduce the level somehow. And if you're not doing that fast enough, then people come in without being able to catch on fast enough. So now they're remedial courses. Right. So, yeah, no, I understand <laughs> what you're getting at. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, now I forgot what I was getting at. Shit. Uh, <laughs> 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 but then, yeah, the, the point, the, 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 the point is that the, 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 the institutional system might not, so the anthill might not have the best interests of the ant at, ants at heart, the individual ants at heart, but it does have the best interest of the anthill itself, even if the anthill is not sustainable or whatever. Um. So, yeah, I totally understand the point you're driving home. And, you know, talking about whatever the system and education, you made, you made the comment earlier that you think that on a systemic level that critical thinking is hopeless. And I'm curious if you believe that it's hopeless because the system doesn't want it, or that the people who are within the system don't want to don't want to uh, don't want to be taught this, or that they'll be resistant to it, or perhaps there's some some other reason. I'm just really uh, curious as to what your thoughts are because 
you know, I've had conversations with other people who think that, you know, from a control standpoint, if you're trying to run a society, that having people educated beyond a certain point isn't actually advantageous, that they become too recalcitrant or challenging or something of that nature. I didn't agree with it, but I've heard these arguments made before. Yeah, I, I, just could, I could definitely see that happening. I mean, it's kind of hard to get me to work for something anymore. I mean, I'm not really motivated my money, for, for example. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I, could, yeah. I could see people getting, getting too educated for their own good. I mean, but that depends on, that depends on what kind of system or what kind of society you want at, uh, at the final you know, at the final level, if you want, if you want essentially like uh, an extractive civilization or an industrial civilization, then it probably makes a lot of sense that people are not too smart and they work very hard and that they're motivated to do so by essentially being indebted, or paying off loans and occasionally getting that dopamine rush from buying something new. Because if they don't get that, they might they will definitely not work as, 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 as hard yeah. as they currently are. So in, in that sense, you know, if we, if we imagine that powerful people are pulling the strings on society and then optimizing for that, then education is beyond a certain point is a bad thing. And specialized education is almost like a divide and conquer thing. Well, you might be overly educated, but you're really not because you only know that one thing, right? Whereas the rest, you're, you're like barely functional at all. You cannot even start a fire or explain how the microwave operates beyond push, the button pushing. Um, uh, divide, divide and conquer, oh, critical yeah, thinking yeah. and education, people being overeducated. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember what I was saying. I just don't remember why I was saying it. <laughs> um, well, one thing. So, yeah, yeah, no, oh, okay. I remember. So, like, it's, it's kind of like the same thing uh, when, uh, in, in terms of like when politicians occasionally look, looks, looks at like uh, population and, and fertility, for example, uh, where, where the point is like if, if we don't have enough children, then like uh, we, we being sort of like the far, far sighted pullers of, of strings and, and the general society will run out of either consumers or. Uh, workers to, who are paying into uh, social security for the increasing elderly burden or soldiers, right? So, so they are kind of doing it for the good of the system, but they are not going to do it. They're not doing it for the good of those who are about to be born in that sense. So I don't, I don't know if there's some kind of master plan going on like that. It sounds sort of like a little, uh, I mean, I'm sure some, I, uh, let me put it another way. I'm sure some people think like that. If you're some yes. kind of industrial magnet, you would certainly promote things that are good for, the, for, 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 for your business because you know that your business or corporation might live for 200 years uh, as opposed to those who work in it. So you're, you're sort of like working for the institutions. Whether this is being done deliberately or whether it's sort of more of an emergent structure, or emergent feature of the way things are currently organized, that's more what I would lean towards. Can't, can't really say. Uh, I mean, all from my perspective, I'm sort of more, more inclined to, towards sort of like the individual practical solutions in terms of like, well, let's use our physicist's mind to take the system apart and then find a solution where for the individual for those who want to take it, right? Yeah, it definitely has to be like, uh, 
a grassroots movement. So teaching the individual how to yeah. kind of move away from these things. And you know, going to your point of whether or not it's an emergent phenomenon where we're at now, if it was something that, you know, where you have like these architects, I, I think that perhaps it's a little bit of both when you're talking about emergent, like it, it arose because there were architects along the way that were directing uh, capitalism in the way that it works today where with this excess consumerism. Yeah. There were master marketer psychologists. Uh, there's one, I think it was Edward Bernays in the early 1900s. Uh, he very, um, was a, is a brilliant mind. I think he was a cousin of Freud or something like that. But he went into the, uh, he went into corporate America and he is essentially de uh, devising marketing campaigns to get people to buy products. And you still think you still see this happening today where people are using cutting edge psychology in order to get people to do things. And a lot of that is just this capitalist system of consume, consume, consume. Uh -huh. So whether or not we want to admit it, there were there were architects who crafted our society over the uh -huh. past hundred years that we are now living in today. Uh -huh. And going back to whether or not this is a good or a bad thing when it comes to people being educated, particularly in critical thinking, I do not see human beings surviving sustainably with the current system. The current system is, is so messed up and if the current system forces us as a society to train people to be wheels or cogs in a larger machine where all they do is go through this uh, uh, wake, work, consume, or buy things cycle on a daily basis. Uh, I, I don't see. I don't see how that is going to lead to a long-term human civilization. I just don't. And I, you know, from a, from from a happiness standpoint too, I don't think people are happy doing that. I don't think that I mean, that fulfills. Like I don't. The, the sort of like the happiness indices. Yeah. They're, they're like flatlined for, for years, if not decades and you can even see it on like the uh the, the spending curve the easterling paradox is that you economically you would expect that uh, that the happiness versus consumption right would be like a straight line up but it actually like yeah it tapers like, off after in, in we talk about like income level two beyond a certain point they've studied yeah. this yeah. yeah it falls off exponentially where you get to or you get diminishing returns yeah. where like above beyond like 70 or seventy five thousand. depending yeah, yeah. you know again that depends on how you want to live, but I guess for the average American, if they want to, you know, live in a home or whatever, and they want to have a car, that it's generally said, we said at like two, two, uh, two thirds, sort of like a third over the average income yeah. or something like that. So everybody wants to be like slightly better than average, no matter what the average is, beyond like a certain very, very low point. So, but uh, going into the minimalist, the early retirement extreme, if you're able to reduce your overhead significantly, then you can get to that point very quickly. Where you know you make enough money, uh, and beyond that point, because you're so minimalistic, it's not going to make you any more happy. And then you can go and spend your time doing whatever it is that yeah. you want to spend your time doing, whatever fills you inside. Yeah, and especially uh, if you're like widely, widely competent in various skills, you can like uh, stretch dollars in many different ways. Not only do you have uh, interests that are uncorrelated with spending. But you also have ways of reaching that happiness point a lot earlier, 
right? I mean, so as a, as a household here, uh, we spend about $14,000 a year per cup for, for, for two adults, right? But yeah. I would estimate that our standard of, of living compared to our neighbors is, is more sort of like in the $50,000, $60,000 neighborhood, which means that we are getting like four times as much out of each dollar as, as, as they do. That also means that we are spending our money much, much differently than the than the average consumer if you look at what kind of products we buy uh, or what kind of services we consume. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as far as problems go for humanity at the moment, Jacob, for me, like I'm really, really concerned about uh, global warming. That really concerns me. I'm uh, very concerned about polarization here, particularly in the United States. And then I think that the and this is beyond the United States, this is again a global issue, but if you're talking about like first world, or not even first world, but like just capitalism in general, I think capitalism has done wonders. Uh, I think that's undeniable, but it has, particularly here in, in the United States, it's kind of morphed into this, uh, th this ugly creature that is not sustainable uh, in the long term. And what we need to do is figure out how to take the capitalism and turn it into a sustainable form of capitalism where you have like free markets and things of that nature, but we're able to figure out uh, where, where, where we draw the line and what's reasonable and what's not. And I don't know how you do that. If that's right. through, you know, if that's going to be through the nonprofit sector, if that's going to be through new businesses that I, I don't even know of, it's a, if it's a fundamental shift in governing, um, for example, like more regulation or something of that nature, I'm not exactly sure how you solve this problem, but I do know one thing that the, the grassroots movements of, of, of getting to people and trying to tell them that they are more than what they consume and that you don't need all of this stuff to make you happy, that this, that, that this uh, philosophy will lead to long-term sustainability for the planet. Yeah, I think, People I think, I think, really, really need to detach themselves from this idea that they've been indoctrinated with and that we've promoted, at least here in the United States, and I think this happens in other capitalistic nations as well, for the past hundred years or so. I think, I, think just... that's the, I, I, I sort of agree with that. I mean, I think that's the only, only way I found that I could imagine that would work going for people as individuals and then creating sort of, I think it's going too slow. I don't think it's going to be done in time, but I think it's the only way. Um, creating enough individuals who are actually free to choose their own minds. Let me rephrase that. They actually have the liberty to live in a different way have the freedom to live in a different way. Because if you go to uh, sort of like a random person who are sort of like deep in their careerism or consumerism and, and tell them, well, you have to live with an ecological footprint or resource base or pollution limit that is like four or five times lower than you're used to. And they will tell you, well, that's impossible. That's too extreme. I cannot do it. So in order for me to actually even begin thinking about that, we need to elect some politicians who will do some, some kind of top-down thing. Or we need to convince the corporations because they are like the evil ones or something. Uh, so I think that's essentially where that's, that's, that's essentially like currently the system is, is, is trapped because they don't know any other way than to solve problems at the institutional level. And the current institutional level, for example, with global warming is stuck at the national level, but it cannot be solved at the national level, right? I mean, you saw that with the Paris Agreement that kind of fell apart. We don't know if it's sort of like on again on, on January uh, 24th or whatever, or whether it will stay off. Uh, 
uh, sort of like a top-down solution for climate change would almost require sort of like global coordination. But we are very, as, as humanity is very poor at global coordination or something like that. So the only other alternative is for to, 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 to create individuals from the bottom up in, in, yep. in, 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 that, in that sense. Uh, a grassroots movement. And yeah, and like you said, like on a, on a governmental level, it's just, it's, it's seemingly been impossible. And, but what gives me a little bit of hope is the Montreal Protocol. So we did come together for the ozone hole uh, with the yeah, Montreal that, Protocol. That had, like a, that, that had like a simple technological solution where you could just tell like one company, I don't know, was it DuPont yeah. or something else, say, okay, yeah, we already had a replacement. Yeah, it was a much simpler problem. I will, yeah, it was a much simpler <laughs> problem, absolutely. Yeah, EO2 is way, way, way. Yeah. yeah, it's in everything almost. Uh, and if it's not CO2, then it's methane. That's the thing we very things we eat, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's that's I don't, I don't those are not those are not sort of like a difference of degree. Those are entirely different problems. Uh, okay, okay, yeah. that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. There was global cooperation though, and yeah, for right. something environmentally related. Which, uh, why global warming, I have a little bit of hope of the global cooperation again, but you know, as we just discussed, I mean, it, well, global, war global warming is incredibly more complex than what happened with the ozone layer, yeah. or the ozone hole over, uh, excuse me, over Antarctica. Yeah, I mean, with global warming, it took what, like, uh, I think the Charney report in 79 is essentially what the current level of understanding is in terms of accuracy. Uh, and then it took uh, thir 13 years until we had the first international conference in Rio essentially and then it took another what was it, 2015 or something where you had the first global agreement that we should agree to agree on something that was the yeah. Paris agreement so it was not binding in any way and so getting to the next step from that you know it's just moving too slowly with sort of like the current technologies of international collaboration on the nation state level uh, from a scientific perspective, I mean, and I don't, I don't know if there's a sort of like a, a sociological or political solution to that, but I think a lot of scientists in that regard is sort of punching on that, saying it's not, it's not our problem, or rather, rather what I think what's really happening is that the two different camps, the STEM camp and the poli-sci camp on, 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 on the other side, are hoping that, that the other side can somehow solve the problem. So like from a political and economical and financial and cultural, uh, those people who are sort of like steeped in that, they're kind of looking for a technology solution like green tech or something that some, someone will come up with something fancy, right? Something that will solve. Yeah, that technology, yeah technology will save us. Um, and on the STEM side, STEM side, it's kind of like, well, we probably will not be able to do that, but uh, you know, if you guys on the on the policy side can just sort of like agree that everybody that we reduce everything by five percent emissions by five percent per year for the next you know like three decades, then that too will resolve it. And of course, on on, on, the, on the political side, they know that nobody can agree to that. So we're kind of we're kind of stuck, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it, like you said, it's just not moving fast enough, and yeah. we are not we are not making the changes on the time scales that need to be that the changes need to be implemented right, in order right, to right. adverse or excuse me uh, in order to avoid some of these uh, really really bad scenarios when it comes to the climate. This, uh, because uh, the sort of like the uh, generic human is is 
I mean, we're still operating essentially with the same hardware yeah. as we were 50 years, 50,000 years ago. And we're sort of like, the, the average time horizon is something like maybe next Friday, if that, right? And, and so the average concern of what the future goes up for a few days to a month, maybe. Uh, and uh, average concern for other human beings goes not much further than, you know, friends and family, possibly to the entire country or your local club, you know what I mean, right? So like your Dun the Dunbar number, essentially. is what Yeah, the Dunbar call. number, like 130 people or something like that. Uh, the, the, the number of people, we, we're not really concerned about, I mean, we might express some concern about people on the other side of the planet, but in practice, we're not acting as if that is a concern. And similar with the time scale, so our sort of local space-time bubble as a, a Neolithic derivative is, is very tiny. And we simply do not have the, we, we don't really, tend as sort of like a species to process beyond that and that is what is required now and since we we're need, yeah, when you say it's required yeah we need to yeah. start thinking yeah uh we need to start thinking in systems thinking and on, on much larger scales than we currently are right. and yeah. it's not something that we do naturally but it's something that we can teach people um yeah. I, I think it would be very easy to implement it um, into the or incorporated into the public yeah. education system. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think so we, can, I, uh, we, we can teach people the ideas in the abstract, but can we teach them in a way so people also like internalize such behavior that I am less certain of? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I've had an interesting, I had an interesting notion years ago of maybe trying to harness the overview effect on like large scales. I don't know if you're familiar with that, the overview no. effect. No. So the overview effect is something that astronauts experience when they see the planet from space. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. That it impacts them on such a profound level right, that they right. feel this sense of connectedness yeah. to the planet, okay. to each other. Like you don't see you don't see different countries anymore. There's no boundaries, and right. yeah. uh, that you come back to Earth with a yeah. sense of like how precious the planet is, and yeah. that we're one human race, and all of this and. I had the notion that perhaps maybe something like a technology like VR or something like that could be harnessed. I think on a simpler level, yeah. I mean, just, just having people, you know, uh, I, I, I used to hate travel. I was strongly against travel, probably because I, I did a lot of it in grad school and as a postdoc and I was just sick and tired of it. But, but I've sort of come around on that thinking that like going to other countries and, and not, not as a tourist, but actually living there yeah. or inside the U.S. living in other states, but not just moving to your sort of like your own in-group, a tribe in another state, but actually living with other kinds of people uh, and other cultures. Uh, no, I agree with that. that. No, of, yeah. Kind of overview. I mean, and then the thing like going, going to college might not be so much about um, uh, learning a bunch of technical stuff, push, pushing equations around, it might be more about living on your own. That's like a, a, a sovereign individual, more or less, uh, compared to when you were like a, a child living with your parents. And if you do that out of out of state, I mean, there's a lot of things you have to learn faster, like like organizing your own laundry, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, making sure that there are actually groceries in the fridge yourself. It's just, it's it's pedestrian and simple stuff, right? But Doing, doing these, and, and, that, and that's just sort of like the, the, the very first that you can go much farther and like move to another country. I can move, you can uh, move to, uh, and uh, I mean, 
okay, I'm kind of arguing in distance here. I think the experience in doing something that you're not normally doing is more valuable than doing just the same experience in another country. So the other, the other important thing um, to, is, is, is all, I mean, not only trying to, to, to live in different countries or trying different locations, but also trying to uh, um, live on like different uh, budgets, uh, different situations, different income levels. Uh, and, and then it becomes a lot clearer of how, how different people are, because there's like really a tendency to only see one's in-group, especially if one spends spends a lot of time in that group and yeah i think i mean um, if there's a technological solution i think actually the work world is kind of moving in the wrong direction in that regard because uh what uh say if we, if we return to sort of like the facebook google thing uh where the technology sucks that fit but it, it tends to create filter bottles right where people get where the in-groups shrink more and more and fracture uh, because that allows for a lot of engagement. I don't think it's surprising that it's happening that way because it's essentially reinforcing our nature. What, 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 what effective technologies should do would essentially be to like resist our, our sort of like Neolithic. Yeah. No, yeah, I de it definitely, that aspect is definitely moving in the wrong direction by yeah. keeping us in our bubbles. And it's, I mean, there's evidence we're becoming more polarized because of it. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking about our brain, how our brain is not evolving at the same rate as technology is. Right. You, know, you have these things moving on exponential trajectories, maybe even super exponential. And we're still thinking linearly. Um, our hardware is not updating. And if you look at how we responded to the COVID response, at least the public, we're talking about exponential trajectories. Uh, it, it's been, at least here in the United States, it's been pretty bad. Some countries have been much better at it than others. And this here in the United States, not good at all. Uh, but like I look at this and then I look at global warming, you're moving on the same exponential trajectory and people just cannot seem to understand the urgency of doing something because they don't understand how to think in exponentials. And I mean, so COVID is sort of like a trial run to global warming. Yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah, a little we bit. This right, we cannot get global warming right. And on an individual level, it's something like uh, like diabetes or heart disease and all these lifestyle diseases. Like it's something like 60% of Americans die of lifestyle, the preventable lifestyle diseases. It's simple stuff like eat right, move regularly, all that kind of stuff. But you know, our brains can't even get that right on an individual level. So like this. It kind of makes me a little hopeless. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I was I was super optimistic when I was younger that we would we would figure right, this out, you. and I really really wanted to be a part of the solution. I still want to be a part of the solution, and it's something that I continue to work on. Uh, but it, you know, the more that you understand the problem, it does just seem like it's like a Sisyphean type of effort where it's just like okay, you never you're never gonna be it. You, you keep pushing the ball up the hill, and then it just rolls down again, and you just don't make any progress whatsoever. Uh, I mean, that's I, mean, why I walked out of <laughs> physics actually. Yeah. Uh, because I, I had I had started my blog around my final postdoc, and I was beginning to notice that uh, I was actually getting more feedback and more more engagement, so to speak, on the blog than I ever had been in my physics uh, work. Um, when when I did like my initial sort of like intro week at my at my, at my last position there, the, we we talked to an admin. 
and he uh, revealed that he was like a former physicist at, at that lab. And I, I, I don't know if it was me asking him or someone else, or like, why are you, why are you an administrator now? Well, he said he, well, he wanted to do, uh, do work that was interesting to more than five people uh, in the world. And I was just like, FML, right? <laughs> no, <okay>. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, I can appreciate that. And that's, yeah. uh, it's part of the reason so why I moved away. Towards this more like uh, applying physics skills to like how to, yeah. how to live a more interesting life, your personal life instead. I mean, it was the same thing. I, I uh, along with the anti-consumerism and, and sort of like this whole mortgage saving business, uh, I was also very much into uh, peak oil, the peak oil movement at a time, uh, around that time in the 2000s. And I found that most people really did not want to talk about that stuff. It's like, uh, please, please stop talking about it, Jacob. This is, this is too depressing. I don't want to hear about it anymore. So, so there's a, like a lot of, a huge head, sort of like head, stick our head in the sand effect on people. There's very few people who actually like to hear that things are not well in the kingdom. Um, and so in, in, in those regards, like, so, okay, so what, what are the solutions there? Like, yeah, you could do energy research and find a new energy source, or you could also go in the direction of trying to educate people to, like, use the, energy, the existing energy better. And I found that, I, okay, my, my strength was essentially in trying to communicate, trying to sort of bridge this kind of complex understanding of, of the world. And, and, and translate it into some more sort of like individually actionable items or yeah. action, individual actions. So, so that's essentially what I ended up doing. I mean, it's, it's very, very hard to escape that now. Well, no, I, I mean, I certainly can appreciate it. I know how esoteric physics can be. And particularly when I was working in theoretical physics, I felt so detached. And the work that I'm attempting to get involved with now is more in the urban sciences and trying to figure out how to make cities more sustainable uh, since we are becoming an increasingly urbanized uh, society. Right. And that's still a bit detached, but uh, you know, I think it's more applicable to what's going on in the world than right, right. obviously high energy theory. And then I started my blog, Intelligent Speculation, which I wanted to morph and more into like an educational platform, which it has over the years. But that is my attempt as well to reach out and to connect with people and to try to get them to think a little bit more about why it is that they believe what they believe and you know how it is that they come to structure their thoughts and how they are influenced by you know information you know how do they how do you even go out and you know in the world when you are just bombarded by all this information today through all these smart devices and discern what what is fact from fiction yeah. but yeah it's it's certainly interesting times i mean i'm not I'm not, I, I'm not a complete pessimist. I, you know, I still am holding out hope that, you know, the bright minds will come together and that people, that there's enough good in the average person to want to kind of solve these problems. Because I think for a species, this is a make or break century for us. Uh, you know, you're, you're familiar with Fermi's paradox. I'm assuming as a physicist you are, so Fermi's paradox, for those who aren't familiar, is the idea that the reason why we don't see, we don't see intelligent life anywhere else in the universe uh, is because there's some sort of great filtering event that intelligent life can't seem to get beyond a certain stage. And this, this century, I, I think, is our 
is our make or break point, I think, for us Especially as a species. Whether we can escape our own pollution. Yeah. And I don't think I, I don't think leaving the planet is the answer. Mm -hmm. uh, I really don't. I, I mean, I don't see that being at least in the immediate future. You must have to run fast enough. Then I mean, yeah, I, I just don't we, think. We I just don't think. Us, right, we'll screw that up, right? But then at some point we run out of planets in the solar system and going to another star. Yeah, system. we need we need to we need they to move beyond. Yeah, we need to move yeah. beyond this sort of cancer type of model relationship right. that we have with our planet to one of like a probiotic where we have a symbiotic relationship with our host. Uh, and we currently do not. We have more of a parasitic uh, relationship with our host, and we need to move to the symbiotic one. And that transition needs to happen rather rapidly, and we'll see if it can happen. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, I'm hoping that critical thinking, you know, and your philosophy as well will play, will play a role, you know, on an individual level, trying to get people to adopt these philosophies to live minimalist and to understand how it is that, they come to structure their thoughts. Yeah, at least we tried, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Jacob, I think this is a great stop, uh, a great point to stop. I just want to thank you again so much for uh, agreeing to come on. It's been, I mean, it's been an in incredibly enlightening chat. Very, very uh, wonderful overall experience. And for those that are tuning in, I mean, are you active at all online? I mean, you still have your blog. It's up and running. I'm, exactly. I'm, can they find you? I'm highly active on my my forum, but that's about the only only place. So, okay. Uh, so that's sort of like of the uh, if you can find it challenge level. Okay. <laughs> because that kind of keeps the level high, I would say, if people want to make the effort to actually go and go and find me, that makes the experience. Well, I'll I'll, I'll definitely make sure <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll definitely make sure to link to your blog in the show notes. Yeah. And if you want to engage with Jacob, then you can uh, have. You can go on a hunt for his uh, his forum tab, which you'll find. In there. <laughs> and then uh, your book is available, obviously. Um, so early retirement extreme. It is available on the website, and then it's available. I'm assuming on like Amazon and other platforms it's as well. On, uh, yeah, that's a paperback and Kindle, and uh, we just have an audio book coming okay. out as well. Oh yeah, that's right. The audio book's available now too. Yeah, it came out like a couple weeks ago. Uh, and then there's a wiki that's being developed as well. But uh, okay. if you find the blog, those are all linked in the, in the top bar, the right sidebar. Okay, fantastic. All right, anyway, thank you again. And for those of you that are tuning in, uh, definitely make sure to like, to share, leave us a review, let us know your thoughts. And uh, it's, uh, it's been wonderful. Can't wait to uh, bring some more quality content your way. Until next time and take care.